Good. And set. Hello. Good day, everyone. <clears throat> Hello, and thank you for coming back again for another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream. Uh, this is episode 16. So uh, that means up to this point, a little over 30 hours worth of story has already gone on. I legit uh, did not realize it was going to take so long to tell this story, uh, considering I have so much more still to go. Um, but it's kind of exciting uh, to get to go into such detail and kind of share everything with everyone. So I'm excited to continue that story tonight. Hopefully you're all doing well. Thank you for coming back. If you're listening to this uh, as an audio podcast later, I appreciate you as well. Uh, Merged Worlds is now available on both iTunes and Spotify, uh, free as an audio podcast. So another great place to listen if you prefer that over video content. Let me grab something here real quick. grab the right binder, I realized at the last second. So, open up our storybook and continue on. So, we'll uh, do just a real brief recap of where we left off last time and where we're going next. So, that's pretty cool. Oh, missing one. There it is. Good stuff. Okay. So, um... In our last episode, um, our group of friends uh, were going to be traveling west to the kingdom of Thorman, <clears throat> which is under siege by forces of undead. Uh, the primary city where our companions live is Paxawal, and Paxawal is separated from Thorman by a great mountain range that's very difficult to traverse. And... The undead seem to be coming from the mountain range towards Thorman, which would technically be coming from Paxawal, although as of yet, there have been no undead on the Paxawal side. Oh, and hello, Taijo, Neon, and Teresa. Hello, thank you for coming by. <laughs> Sorry, I was a little delayed there. Um, so yes, they, uh, Paxawal was gathering its forces to go over and assist the kingdom of Thorman. Um, they have been friendly up to this point with some trade, but Paxwell has been trying to get Thorman into an actual alliance, uh, treaties and such, and this is a good opportunity to both help Thorman because, you know, it's the right thing to do, and B, potentially also cut off a threat that could eventually get to Paxwell, and, well, maybe make some friends in the meantime. Um, some of our characters had some personal interaction before they left Thorman. Uh, Darsh discovered uh, that his cousin uh, was alive here as well on Merge World and uh, was living in the kingdom of Kroniar, the Minotaur Kingdom, uh, which is a kingdom of three islands uh, south of Paxawal uh, in the Great Ocean. Southern Ocean, is, as it's known, I should say. And was also made aware that there was in that kingdom, a faction of Minotaur that um, had attempted to assassinate the Minotaur Emperor, <clears throat> excuse me, 
which, you know, assassination by Minotaur terms is weak as it is, and being very honorable and combat oriented, using the subterfuge and assassinations and stuff just really isn't their style. So um, they are a group that are uh, trying to cause or sow dissent between the humans and the Minotaur kingdoms because they want Minotaurs to go to war and defeat the humans instead of ally with them and or open up trade, which is what the emperors are doing. Um, a bit more economically sound. So, being made aware that the an assassinator, assassin named Craig, K-R-A apostrophe A-G, I like to stress that, um, was also rumored to be potentially in the human kingdoms causing problems. So Darcy was keeping an eye out for him. Dandy had <clears throat> joined the Thieves Guild of Paxawal. Ah, hello, Beast. Thank you for coming by. Um, and Dandy had helped retrieve a stolen item from the One-Eye, who Galen One-Eye, who is the uh, Thieves Guild leader in Paxawal. And then the big one near the end is that Artemis... Uh, was visited in their own home at night by the mysterious figure Draven. Uh, no relation, I should say. Um, who uh, had offered her a bargain or assistance, stating that it had been made known to him that in order to defeat um, a villain that he is uh, searching for, he would need her help at some point, and that her help had to be given willingly. He can't force her to do it, can't pay her to do it. She has to agree to do it. So he offers her a deal. He says that he knows that in the future, a time will come when they will, she will need his help for something. When that time comes, he will offer it. And if she agrees to it, then when the day comes that he needs her to find or take out this scourge that he's looking for, that she will drop everything, no matter what's going on in her life, she will drop all of it and come and help him. And she didn't have to say yes or no until the time comes she actually needs his help, and then she can make that decision. And he gave her this little necklace, which looks like a blood teardrop on a very thin silver chain that she's wearing under her robes around her neck. So to make sure that with that, she, he'd be able to communicate with her when the time came. She decided to keep that information from her friends and not tell anyone, surprisingly. personal reasons and reasons of not wanting to freak them out, I guess. But after that, they all boarded the ship the next day and made their way to Thorman. Now, while at Thorman, there's a great you know feast and such, because, you know, the king's trying to make good and show off a bit in front of all these visitors that are there. So there are multiple clerics and mages and politicians from Paxwall have come there as part of this, and uh, including our heroes. And during that event someone tried to assassinate the king's daughter. And the companions seeing this coming managed to stop that from happening. And Darsh ended up in com combat with that Minotaur Craig, K-R-A apostrophe A-G, and killed him, or defeated him, while at the same time uh, they managed to save the king who had been stabbed with a poisonous blade from the Minotaur as well. Um, 
after everything was searched out and realized, and figured out that the, the bands had saved the king's life, the king, while still weak, um, you know, greatly appreciative of that, saving not his life uh, as much as saving his daughters, um, was very thankful. And everyone at that point was proceeding to head west to try to come against this undead army how it's being created, who leads it, they do not know, only that it seems to be coming from the West slow, methodically, but organized in some way. So that's where we left off. Minor recap for everybody. So I'm excited because if all goes well today, we should have pretty good, pretty good story. <laughs> pretty good uh, big events going to end up here. So I'm excited to get to this part. Been building up for a little while. So thank you all for coming by and listening to this. And uh, if you're listening to this later, I appreciate that as well. Um, so it's the next morning after the feast. Even after all of the events that have happened the night before, people try to be as rest as possible. Uh, they have their equipment, they have their gear. And now the forces of Paxawal, joining with more reserves from Thorman, will be marching west. Uh, the clerics and the mages all intertwined within there. They're, uh, the companion's friends. Tobias is there. Um, the young gentleman that they escorted to Paxawall um, a little over a year, year and a half ago by this point. And uh, who has now at this point become a relatively known mage in his field, which is uh, the creation and research and understanding of magical items and artifacts. That's his specialty. I mean, you can cast a magic missile and a fireball like the next guy, but his specialty is making or studying magical items and artifacts. Uh, so he's in there as well. He's kind of traveling with them, which is nice. It's good to have a mage again. And uh, I'll say that when a Tobias was originally rolled into the adventure, it was because there was no mage. You know, uh, Zarin had disappeared. No one knew what happened to him. Uh, we had a cleric, a rogue, and two warriors, but we had no mage. So I thought it would be good to be able to have a mage uh, just in those situations where it was needed. And then Tobias ended up becoming a much, much more interesting character than I'd expected as time goes on. So um, I'm glad he got to stick around. So the friends here stay pretty close to each other. Uh, at times, you know, the clerics marching with the clerics, mages with mages, warders with warders, so on and so forth. And as they're making their way to the west, they're getting more information of kind of what's been going on here, what's been happening. And uh, as we've covered before, the, the undead appear to be moving at a steady rate. They seem to be moving as a single entity. They don't seem in much of a hurry. Um, but they are definitely destroying anything that they come across. Um, any of the living, so on. And uh, while many forces have already been sent in from Thorman, in the early couple, they didn't realize quite how big the undead force was. So the first few groups of uh, knights or warriors or soldiers that they sent in uh, suffered very high casualties. Because I just didn't understand the scope of undead. Because again, they're just appearing out of nowhere. And then for everyone, every one person that dies... They rise, and now the undead army has yet another. So many of the original forces sent in to fight the undead are now on the enemy's side, fighting against the living. Now our characters are chatting with 
different people and such do learn several different pieces of information. And while we were playing, I opened it up where they could, Artemis could ask the clerics from Thorman things, and Mercy could ask things of the warriors, and Dandy just asks everybody. So <clears throat> by asking specific questions, I had lists of specific information that they could learn, and they did ask some right questions and get a few pieces. Uh, so one of the big things that they learned is that to the west, on the way to the mountain range, there was a great graveyard there um, that was used by many of the towns and cities because you know you just don't bury your dead in town. There's undead in this world. You just don't want them that close. So there's a big graveyard that weighs out. Although many of the dead that are coming um, in this in this force, if you will, uh, don't appear to be like old old dead. You know, I mean, if someone crawls out of a grave and they've been dead a hundred years, it's mostly bones and hair and such. If that, um, someone has been died two, three weeks ago, they come out mostly still fleshy, depending on how they died. Um, and then what clothing they could be wearing could be very definitely uh, affected by when and how the person passed away and when they were buried. So a lot of the dead don't appear to be dressed um, in ways that you'd say, okay, these are definitely our dead from that graveyard. You know, that's one thing that they kind of <clears throat> shot out of the water very early. These aren't our dead. We're not seeing anybody we recognize. They aren't wearing, they're not buried in the soldier's uniform, wearing anything of our type of clothing. Um, at least not many. There may be a couple floating in there, but by this point, current farmsteads and small towns have already been devoured by the undead, so you're going to see some folks that were never buried and are definitely dressed more local and, and, and current. But many of the dress of the people that they're seeing um, is not of Thorman-style garb, at least from the last several centuries. Anything beyond that, they'd be mostly skeletal figures, and while there are some skeletons and stuff mixed in with the zombies, um, it's, not, it's not a lot of those. So while there is a graveyard there, that it was not believed to be the original source of the dead. Not to say it didn't contribute. Was anything beyond the graveyard? Was another question that was asked. And they said that no, at least not originally. Um, when the merge happened, as we know, it combined multiple pieces of worlds and crammed them all together. And the world that Thorman came from, there, there was no mountain range there. It was actually just great forests and hills, minor mountains, but nothing like what you see here. So very shortly after the graveyard is land and the whole mountain range was nothing that was from their world originally. And <clears throat> of course, once the merge happened, this kingdom needs to know what's on their borders. They looked around and researched and checked their land. And they did see that up in the mountains on the western side, there appeared to be some type of keep or... I wouldn't per se call it a castle. Because there's a definite difference between a castle and a keep, for those of you who don't know this, at least as I understand it. Castle built for living, a keep built for military. So this keep is was designed more to be a place of either defense or offense. A place where warriors or knights or whatever would stay. It doesn't look like a wizard tower. Hey, thank you, Turtle Master 326. Welcome. Thank you very much for joining up for the ODG Dragon membership. I appreciate that. 
for those of you who don't know, uh, Dragon, Draven's Dragons is the membership program here on YouTube, and TurtleMaster326 just joined up. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. That is awesome. I think you might be one of the first people to join up during a Merge World stream. <laughs> so thank you. I appreciate that. That is boss. Um, if you are not in our Discord yet, um, I believe you are, but I'll say it out here just in case, in case anybody joins in the future. Um, if you go to OnlyDraven.com, at the top, there is a link. Oh, and thank you very much, Milkshake Games, for subscribing, for following. I appreciate that very much. Uh, if you go to OnlyDraven.com, at the top is a link that you can click on. We'll take you to the Discord. Uh, definitely jump in there. Let us know, and myself or one of the moderators will get you uh, set up with the membership level access in there as well. So thank you very much for joining up. I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you. And I will add that to the list, because it is a... It is a channel rule that anytime we get a new member, I got to do a shot. So that's two. We've got two this week. So that's another one I'm going to have to add to our stream tomorrow night. So, all right. Those are adding up. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that little aside there. Um, so, yeah, going back uh, to the story. Sorry, that threw me. Um, <coughs> the keep is really up in the mountains and like built into the side of it, like you can see it, but there's not a clear way to get up to it. <clears throat> While they investigate it, they didn't climb up there. There didn't seem to be anything going on. There were no lights, no people living up there, nobody waving. Um, <clears throat> it was just up in there, and it looked like it wasn't in the best of shape. So it doesn't look like it was recently kept. It looked more like a ruins, but it's very, very steep up in the mountains. Even though it's not superior high, the mountains are very steep very quickly. <clears throat> Almost like I said, just spears jutting out of the ground. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm so sorry for that. Hmm. And uh, the it's just not very easy to get to unless you start doing some mountain climbing. And that was something that they weren't willing to do at that time. There's a lot going on. And so the world was just recreated. you got to get a lot of stuff going. That did not become a priority. So that is to the west. But again, they don't think a bunch of undead just came falling out of there. You know what I mean? It's up high enough that if they fell, they'd get torn up or smashed kind of thing, especially brittle bones and such. So it wasn't believed that they would be coming from there either, just because they had no evidence to show that it should. Um, now, again, those things are to the east, the direction the undead are coming from. So um, it's things that the characters are like, well, we need to keep those things in our mind. So maybe there's something at the graveyard. Maybe there's something at the keep. Uh, those are the only two things that we're really made aware of to them. Um, but it's two things that they definitely made note of that came up in, in their list of information that they received. And they learned about several of the towns. Um, you know, certain towns were known for mining. Certain towns were known for lumber and such or whatever. Um, several for uh, animals like herding, farming, things of that nature, crops. So they learned a lot about the geography of this area, because uh, Thorman is, in, like Paxwall, is probably one of the first two kingdoms I really got down and designed in great detail with maps and the economy and um, the amount of people that live there and, and what their professions were. <clears throat> so both Thorman and Paxwall, I have binders of information on on the stuff, the people that live there. I have pages of NPCs, people who own bars, who own stores, people who are different ranks in the military and the Navy, and half of that never got used, but it's there. It's me. For me, it's a reference, things that I can use in the future, but it helps flesh out other things, so um, when I need it, I can be like, oh yeah, sure, the captain of the third rank of that ship is this. 
You know, I've got 20 ships in the Navy. Which one do you want to know about? You know, so uh, I, I, I do have a lot of that information. And I may not use all of it here either, but um, as Merge Worlds moves forward and we eventually overtake the point of the story that I have experienced and that has already been played, I plan to continue telling the story of what I had written and what I had prepared that never really got played. So the story is going to keep going. Um, so a lot of things that I may never have gotten to use doesn't mean that I won't in the future. So excited by that. Another, again, little interruption in my own story there. <clears throat> so they're marching west. Now, the mountains themselves, if they were to ride hard, uh, they could probably get to them within just a day or two um, or less. I mean, really, if, if a lot of these people are on, on foot, so they're not riding on horses or else, you know, <laughs> if it gets their way faster. There's some, of course, there's some cavalry and such, but cavalry is not going to be that beneficial against the undead. In case you ever are stuck in a situation that you have to fight a horde of undead, cavalry not going to help you that much. The last thing you want are a bunch of teeth right at leg level while you're trying to defend yourself. Or an animal that can be pulled down on top of you and then you're trapped and the undead just swarm you both. So, intelligently, there's very few animals, what few they do have coming. Most are just either high-ranking folks, uh, some of the clerics and mages especially, who probably wouldn't be uh, quite as physically capable of making a forced march. And then some animals pulling carts of supplies and ammunition and things of that nature. Uh, so it's mostly ground forces. And at this, as they're heading east, they're continuously running into people coming west, fleeing the undead horde. Um, usually small groups, small families and wagons and such. Um, as they're coming through, uh, per the king's uh, specific requirements, uh, the clerics do have to clear anyone, check them, make sure no one has been bitten, or cut or infected with anything that could then cause an undead horde to pop up behind the military. You don't want flanked by this either. You don't want to be sandwiched between two undead forces. So this does cause them to stop every so often. So the clerics, which there's a bunch, but not a, not a million, stop, cast spells, check, verify that there's no injuries and that these people are safe to go through. Or if it's normal injuries, maybe even help them, those ones that are sick and such, and help them on their way, getting them behind the military. So this slows down their progress. Um, as they approach some farmsteads and some, they get to the first small town, there are people clearly packing up and leaving. The, at this point, they have to stop and literally get people moving. Some people are like, oh, it's not that bad, I'm not leaving. And they're like, no, King's orders, you got to go. So they spend a good half a day at the first town just getting everyone out and going. Um, and that's slowing them down. Now they know the undead are coming, but they're not in a hurry. So they've got a little bit of time, and they want to save as many people as they can. And if they have to retreat back to this, they don't want to have to retreat back stumbling over refugees. The quicker they can get the refugees heading back towards the kingdom, to the, to the sea, the better chance they'll have to fall back should they need to. This is, the, of course, the theory. I came, I'm not a military strategist, but it's what I would assume would be common sense. In these situations our heroes jump in and are helping wherever is needed. Artemis very easily being the busiest. Helping the other clerics, checking refugees, healing sick, helping folks get taken care of and get through. Um, Dandy's just ru basically running around behind her, trying to help. 50% uh, help, 50% in the way, but Dandy's very dexterous and such, and she, she's been with Artemis a lot, when Artemis like, hey, get me this, I need those bandages, hand me that. Dandy's very, very quick and likes to be helpful. And so Dandy's been a really overwhelmingly helpful person, 
but she's still underfoot and things happen to go missing a lot so that's the only complication Darsh of course is definitely doing a lot of literally the heavy lifting um, people trying to get into wagons and such older people maybe heavier people and they'll pick people up toss them in there you got you got a big chest full of stuff you got to get out of here and people of course in any situation like this are foolish and try to flee with with valuables that they want to take oh this is the picture of my uncle I need that no you don't the undead are coming you just need to get you a little bit of food a little clothes some water and get going but that stuff that does need to get taken supplies maybe weapons armor things that they want to take back to be able to use defensively Darsh is in there doing a lot of that loading and unloading. Um, and a lot of the Minotaurs that were from Kronear don't. Like, they're more of, they would go past the town with a large amount of the military, because a big chunk of the military are going to go past the town and kind of form a wall, so if the undead were to show up, they're kind of defending the town. There's no sight of the undead anywhere close to here, but that's the strategy they're going to be using on each town and uh, homestead they come across pass it, everyone behind doing what they need to to get them going and healed and gone while the military forms the wall. And the Minotaurs are out there because they're here for battle, they're here to fight, not for lifting. <laughs> but the humans, especially the Thorman uh, humans, um, are just really shocked that Darsh is just in there immediately grabbing and helping. And that not There's nothing beneath Darsh. Darsh will start digging a hole if you need him to dig a hole. He has no problem with that. Darsh is all about helping out. Because where he, the way he was raised is very different from many of the Minotaurs that he's come across from Kronear so far. So very quickly, the, the humans are like, wow, this guy's big and helpful. Mercy, um, while also helpful, is a bit more on the strategy side. They're, uh, she's in a lot of the meetings where they're talking about, okay, here we need to move this. The sightings of the undead are here. They believe they're coming this in. We have this many each time before we run into them. And Mercy being raised in a family of knights from a knighthood um, has a lot more strategy planning uh, uh, type experience and training. So she's in those and again, same situation. Jumping in with the Thorman and the Paxwell commanders, you know, throwing out ideas and suggestions very quickly they start to listen to her and take some of her advice because the ideas she's throwing out are really, really good. Um, so both of them are making a bit of a name for each other while Artemis and Dandy are taking care of the healing. They successfully get the this first town done. It was one of the larger ones. It took about half a day to get people bumbling and out. Uh, a few of the force that are going are going to stay behind to finish helping out, and then they'll catch up later. That was to be expected. Each place you may lose a few, um, but try to keep that to a minimum. They don't want to have half their forces gone by the time they get to the forces of undead. That's done. They move forward. They continue again half a day couple small farmsteads, they go through the process again, get to the evening, and they camp. They camp early because the scouts are showing that they should, if all goes as planned, get to the undead by early the next day. They don't want to jump the gun and get, or not early the next day, early the, the day after the next. They don't want to run into them in the middle of the night. At night, it's maybe harder to determine, especially out here, if there's not a lot of starlight, maybe it's cloudy, they don't know yet. It might be a lot harder to tell who's alive and who's not. Um, so they want to make sure they definitely face them during the day if possible. Night goes through perfectly fine. The scouts are out. As they're preparing to leave the next day and scouts are returning, they are disappointed to find that the undead have picked up speed. And it's the first time that that's happened. 
over the last evening, the undead have clearly started moving drastically faster than they've gone before. Normally it's been just a shamble, just to make their way as they're getting there, although as a solid wall. But now they seem to literally be coming with purpose. Um, which, again, upon discussion, leads them to believe something must be leading or controlling them. And maybe it knows they're coming. You know, So it's in a hurry to get there as well, or to get as many people as they can added to their side before they have to fight this force moving against them. This causes the general to pick everything up and say, start putting everybody in a forced march. When we start getting to towns and such, we can't spend as much time now. We need to just check the people, make sure they're okay, and then get them going. We have to get as many people behind us as possible so that we're the wall to give them the time they need out. And they do that. And they force march themselves all day as much as they could. They're not trying to wear themselves out. They know there's a battle ahead of them, but they want to get as many people behind them, between them and Thorman, as possible. They're relatively successful. Very, very small issues. One broken wheel on a wagon. Darsh made really quick work of that, uh, which, again, impressing people. Here, let me hold up your wagon full of stuff while you're doing that. Darsh is very strong. Exceptionally strong. So much so that even the Minotaurs are impressed by some of the physical things he can do. Not as impressed that he just jumps in and gets his arms dirty with the humans, but definitely his physical strength and such, he's impressive. He's a very muscular dude. So the scouts are coming back, and because of the increased speed, but one of the worst fears has come true. There is a large town, almost a small city, yeah, which is city. Let's just say a large town that is not far from where they are. And that was the big one they wanted to get on the other side of before they ran into the undead. The undead, which up until this point had been moving almost as a solid line, like a solid force just moving down, because it's coming almost like not just straight east, but like northeast. I guess it's probably backwards if I'm showing you guys on the do it the right way for the camera. Um, as they're doing this forced march, almost as a solid wall. Not so much now. It's not as solid now. The wall is lumpier and parts are going faster than others. Um, and a big chunk of this wall of undead are going to overtake that city potentially before they get there or almost right at the same time. Um, and there are a lot of people there, including a couple of noble families of importance to the kingdom, uh, the mayor being one of them. And the mayor, not, not a bad dude, but he has been there trying to get people out as well. Uh, but when a place is this big, it just takes longer. And so the force of Thorman and Paxwell really start picking up pace. Now the Minotaurs are all about this now. Now they're like, all right, good. We're finally going to get to see some combat. Enough of this walking, you know. We're usually on a boat. We're not big fans of this just walking around, carrying weapons, watching people do farming. We want to kill something, or re-kill something in this case. So they're actually moving quite quickly. Um, Stamina-wise, uh, and warrior-wise, they're probably in the best shape of, of anybody. So, very often they find themselves having to stop to let the humans catch up. <laughs> but they do start picking up speed and, and making some decent time. As they do, our heroes has a ha are, are kind of sticking together at this point. Um, 
they know that they're going to probably run into this force of undead very, very soon. They want to be together. Um, while they have some responsibilities, they still stay within sight of each other. Mercy does not want Artemis out of her sight for very long. Again, Mercy is very protective of Artemis, but they all are. But Mercy even more so. They're basically best friends at this point. Night begins to come. And as it does, a fog, a thick fog, begins to roll in from the east. The mages very quickly determine that the fog itself seems unnatural in nature and begin to cast spells to dissipate it or to ward it off. And many of their spells are unsuccessful. Some, from the very particularly powerful mages, are more, are, are, have more effect, but they're able to thin it some. They're not able to dissipate it or, or remove it completely. Um, whatever magically is causing that to come in um, is very powerful. So there's that. And they can see, as the sun's going down... It rises in the east, sets in the west. I'm not sure I'm doing this right. Yes. As the sun sets behind them, they can see the outshape or the outline of that town. Right? So it's going to be darker that way because the sun's behind them. They can see it in the distance and they can see that it's burning. Now, I apologize. I can't find the list of the name of the town. <laughs> I looked all over for that today, and I cannot find the page that says the name of the town. But we'll say that it has a name that is important eventually. I think I may have an idea, but I'm just not coming across it. But yes, there, there's a town. And so... Oh, here it is. Uh -huh. Wow, all day, and it's on the second page I flipped to in this new book. Pine Ridge. Pine Ridge is the name of this town. And it's called that because it was a lumber town. It grew very quickly with that. But Pine Ridge is here, and then the mayor's name uh, is basically named Jacob Grant. And Jacob is, uh, like I said, a noble and cousin of the king, and an all-around good dude from everything they've heard. And uh, he's there, and he's definitely high on the king's list of please save him. And his family, because he's got a family. Wife and a couple kids. Seeing that it's on fire, people aren't going to set their own town on fire. At least... If they do, they got to have a good reason. The army starts rushing forward. And it's hard in this situation because you're trying to maintain structure. You know, you just don't want... Because some people are faster than others. You don't want everybody just running in, whatever. You want to have a force of attack. But they're trying to move quickly because the sun's going down. It's getting dark. People start lighting torches. And now they're rushing towards a city that's on fire, which is definitely going to make them have to have more challenges and difficulty in saving people. So, as they approach the city, as they're getting right to the edge of it, they can already see the dead. They see people running. There's living there as well. But they can already see the dead attacking. Um, and some of the dead are burning at this point. They're just walking through the fire like it's nothing until they crumble. Um, a little more resistant to the fire than you would imagine. On fire, managing to stay up walking a little bit longer than a body on fire probably should. But even then, eventually, the fire will take it down. And as the dead continue, they're trying to, obviously, they're trying to kill and eat everybody. 
people are trying to flee. And there's people just running out of the city. And then what are they, all of a sudden in the darkness, they come across the military force and they start freaking out. And they have to be like, no, 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 we're here. Get behind us. Let people through, which causes a problem because now they're having to break their own lines to let refugees through. But they need that, of course. They want to save every person they can. Very quickly, the commander's like, they have plans. They've been planning this all day, depending on the situation. So they charge in, and basically combat begins. And this is the first time that these characters really had to fight in an actual, what you'd say, war or serious combat situation. Most of everything they've dealt with has been us against this group or this monster or this thing. This is the first time that they really had to fight in a large-scale hundreds versus hundreds kind of thing. And some of them had some command. Uh, Artemis had several clerics that she was under her. Tobias had several mages that he was responsible for. Um, Darsh just trying to keep an eye on Dandy and keep her out of trouble. But as this battle began and they started fighting the undead, very quickly, as will happen, they started to get separated. And Mercy, trying to do her best to keep her eyes on Artemis, while at the same time save people and destroy undead, finds her and this group of warriors that she's in starting to be overwhelmed, and as they try to back out and get a little bit of space from that, looking around, they've lost sight of most of the army. They begin to try to go back to the direction they came from, because again, this is a town, they're in fighting in the streets at this point. Mercy's not from here. She doesn't know the layout of the town. She saw a bit of an overhead map, but this is, you know, people has a map saying this is the town. People don't walk around with a map of the town that often, so they weren't expecting that. So it's drawn in the dirt, or somebody drew it on a piece of parchment. They have a, an approximate idea of where the main landmarks are in this town, which is a pretty good size and is currently on fire. So you're dealing with smoke, the fog, undead, combat going on all around you, and you're, and you're not from here. That's, that's a lot. No matter how skilled or talented you are, getting lost is going to happen. And it's not long before they all find themselves mixed in with different groups and doing everything. Darsh ends up fighting alongside many of the Minotaurs, including the general, the leader in charge of it, um, that he spoke with at the dinner the night before. He uh, ends up fighting by his side for a, a good chunk of this battle and ends up uh, actually saving that Minotaur's life at one point. Um from some undead. What they learn, just as a group and in general throughout this experience, is that in the undead, mostly are going to be what you'd consider your typical zombies. You know, slow zombies, you know, that fast virus, fake zombie stuff you see on TV. Good, clean Romero zombies. Shambling, but never stop. And many of them are dressed in odd clothing. They don't all appear to be coming from the same place. Some of them are armed. And that's the big thing they notice right out. Some of them are armed. And while they're not fighting with much skill, some of the zombies appear to have the cognizant, at least memory, of combat. Some of them are just classic, shambling forward, just try to bite, just try to eat. But some have weapons. They also see, in the fog would appear to be some undead on mounts. And it's Dandy who gets a good look at one of those. And she sees that it is some type of skeletal warrior on 
a skeletal horse. And it appears to be going in specific locations. It's not trying to charge forward and eat things or fight. It's not talking. It's not saying, hey, you, go get the humans. But it does give off the vibe that it is you know, kind of guiding. And she sees more than one of them. At least in the area that she's in, she can see another one in the distance. So seeing this, she doesn't think, ah, this is the leader. She does say, okay, this is something that is important and has a bit more control. And instead of going in there and trying to investigate it more, because who doesn't want to see a skeletal horsey? That sounds really cool. Dandy decides she should go back and tell Artemis because Artemis probably needs to know about the skeletal horsey before she goes and see if skeletal horseys like pets. Because she's Dandy. And she fights her way back to try to get back to Artemis and let her know. Mercy, though, and the couple of warriors that she's with are fighting in the streets, the group that she's with. And as she's fighting, and every so often she gets a chance to stop, she looks, she realizes there's more, pe- there's less people with her than it started. Until there's really just a couple of them. And a large part of what they're doing is just kind of beating down undead at homes and trying to get people out. Say, run to the east, go that way, find our military, they will help you. You know, keep your hands up, scream I'm alive, don't, you know, because you don't want to get killed. So do that and trying to help people escape. And they break, they get to a home, and Mercy's fighting some undead, and there are several very elderly people living in this home that aren't going to be able to move very quickly. And the warriors that she's with, Mercy's basically like, get them out of here. I'll try and hold, hold the door, I'll hold this section, get them out of here. Because there's only a handful of them left. And Mercy's going to try to retreat back with them, protect them as they're helping these folks. They're all bigger dudes than her, and she's technically better in combat than she is, so they can do the physical stuff of lifting older people while she bunks undead with her Morningstar. Because, again, that is her primary weapon. She can sword and shield, but she likes to sword and Morningstar more than anything else. And to be honest with you, um, it's way more successful than a bladed weapon when you're fighting undead. Squishing a skull... Way easier than trying to cut off a head or poke it in the eye. You can you can squish a skull really well with a good Morningstar hit. And that's one thing that Mercy has always excelled well in against undead combat because she likes the heavy blunt weapons. So, as she's doing this, she hears someone scream for help. And she's watching these guys trying to help lug these old people out. And she looks back through the smoke. And she sees a group of children. Because as a DM, I'm a jerk. And I love throwing stuff out there where you got a choice. You can help get the old folks back. Or you can help save the kids. Because what's life without conundrums? Mercy yells at the warriors, get those folks out of here, and without hesitation rushes back into the town to try to see these two or three little kids in the smoke. That's important. She can barely see them for the smoke, but she can see a couple kids. But they are crying. They're not zombie moaning. They are crying. She can see they're alive by their movements. 
It's not zombie kids. Now, one thing I've not really talked about with everyone here in the story, but it's important that I bring this up now, is the characters' ages. When all this adventure started, characters, of course, were different ages. This whole thing has gone on. They've been on Merge Worlds now for a couple of years doing all of this, so they're obviously a little bit older. Darsh is in his mid-twenties. Mercy is a year younger than him. Dandy was the youngest. She was 16 when they started, so she's about 18 now. At this point in the story. And Artemis was approximately 180, if I remember correctly. 170 to 180. Because she's an elf, and that's a freaking teenager in elf years. So she was considered young as well. Um, but she's very... Um, you could say talented as a cleric, a natural aptitude. She's very pious, and so as such, she she excelled quickly. But Mercy is about twenty-one to twenty-two at this point, and Darsh is just a year or two older than her, year year and a half older than her. Darsh was the oldest, other than Artemis, because nobody beat Artemis, and Shadow was even older than Artemis. Shadow was like several hundred years old, and Willow was about the same age as Artemis, and things like that. But we'll worry about them later. Zarin was in his late, mid to late thirties. Now he's dead, so, you know, there's that. Um, just wanted to cover that because it can be, it will be important later, and that's something I jotted a note down for myself that I wanted to cover with you guys because we've never really talked about ages. Sometimes it seems like everyone in Dungeons & Dragons never gets old, and that's not something I do. I keep a very accurate calendar when I'm playing, so I know how much time has gone by, and you will have a birthday as a character. You, It will happen, and you will age your character because that... That becomes important for stories and things like that. You decide to settle down, you want a family, you get a keep, you have people who work for you. If you they're coming to you because you're experienced, that experience comes with age. So there's that. Well, I want to cover that. Mercy, like I said, at this point, 21, 22, goes charging in. Very muscular. Mercy is just cut, if you will. Um, so she has a lot of stamina. Next to Darsh, she's got the best constitution. So she charges in and she's thwacking a zombie back and forth as she comes by a skeleton or something. You know, rushes through to get to the kid. She saw the two kids, but as she gets closer in the smoke, she realizes it's not a couple of children. It is about seven or eight kids, ranging from age five to probably twelve. And standing in the middle of them, is a young man, probably somewhere 16, almost 17. And long blonde hair, but unlike most of the kids, which are clearly from this town, they're just wearing regular commoners clothing, this young guy is dressed in armor. Now, I'm not talking pure plate mail, super knight armor or anything of that nature. But something you would expect from a lower ranking. He's got some chain mail, some leather armor on. But what he wears has a crest on it. It's well cared for. And it's easy to see that he's a part of some type of organization. Whether it be knights or warriors or something. You can tell that by... the it's, His stuff's dirty. He's been fighting. There's smoke and ash on it. But it's still well equipped. And he has a sword. And he's trying to get these children through the town. And he's trying to fight the zombies. Um, which isn't easy, 
when you have a sword and a bunch of kids. I mean, this is not easy. And he's marred up, and she can see that there's blood on the side of his face. He's been hit several times. There's dents in his armor. He, whether he's wearing a helmet or something before, he's not now. But he's just yelling at the kids, trying to keep them behind him, keep them together so they don't run out crazy. The important thing is that the clothing he's wearing does not match anyone she's seen in Thorman. His armor and everything, completely different. She rushes in, and of course, someone come rushing at you, he immediately draws a sword, thinking, you know, what undead thing now, you know? Um, and he, you know, she's like, hey, basically yells out, I'm alive. I'm here to help. He sees a bit of relief in her, in his face, like, oh, thank God. Thank the gods, I guess, in this situation. And he yells out to her, he's like, he's like, there's like, I gotta get the kids out of here. Oh, hello, Midnight. I'm sorry. I had a kitty meow all of a sudden behind me and it startled me. Hey, buddy. Um, and she's like, she goes, let me help you know, kind of thing. She starts trying to grab one of the kids and such, and at that time another group of zombies come in, and she has to kind of block the kids behind her, and now her and this young man are kind of fighting side by side, defending these kids. And very quickly, she can see he has training. He clearly knows what he's doing. He's not some super warrior, and watching him, she can see places that he could do better. You know, I mean, you're a warrior, you see somebody fight, you're going to pick up on those things. She's like, okay, I could take this kid in a fight, but he might get a hit in, you know. Um, but he's definitely more talented than some of the folks, even in the, the, the generals and in the military that she's been with. He definitely knows how to use his sword. Um, clearly from the way that he fights, he's used to fighting sword and shield. Um, Hush, buddy. I'm trying to tell a story. <laughs> got a kitty that just wants all the attention in the world. I'm sorry. Um, but... He, he, she can tell he's used to fighting sword and shield, but at this point he just has his sword. Now she fights Morningstar and shield, primarily. And so she shoves the shield into his hand, and he's a little caught off guard, and she's like, take it, and he does. And he starts using the sword and shield, which clearly he's doing a better job with than he was before. And Mercy still using her Morningstar, knows if she needs to, she can whip out another sword. She's not ambidextrous. She does not normally fight two-handed, but she could pull out a dagger if she needs to. But a lot of times, she's going to just go two-handed on her Morningstar, and she's really going to be cracking skulls. And that's just what she does. She knows these are undead. Crack the skulls. All They would have learned all that from the clerics and the experience. These guys know how to fight basic undead. So her and the young man are fighting slowly, trying to get back out, but it seems like they're growing more and more of them. They're getting outnumbered. They're getting encircled. Um, and definitely the cries of the children attracting the undead doesn't help. And the kids every so often get scared and don't move, and then they got to hustle them and things like that, and then all of a sudden they're fighting again. And they're trying to get out of this town. And while this is going on, the building's around them in fire with a mixture of smoke and this weird funky fog that's rolling in. So you don't see very far away, so all of a sudden, whoosh, undead are there. Bonk, bonk, bonk. Undead are there. Fight, fight, fight. Grab the kids and go. It happens again. And at this point, she can't see this, the moon. This smoking such so thick, and everybody's coughing. She doesn't even know she's heading the right direction. Am I even heading back towards him? Am I heading deeper into the undead? 
she yells at she yells at the the kid. She's like, "Do you know where we are?" He's like, "I'm not from here. I don't know." And she's like, "All right, this way," and starts leading them, trying to dodge as many of the undead as possible. Hello, midnight. Okay. All right. So somebody wants to visit for a second. I know we're in a battle situation, but here's midnight. Midnight, the kitty who wants all the attention. He likes to hide his face. Hey, midnight, say hi to all the people. This is Midnight the Kitty. When you pick him up, he hides his face. He's very protective. When we adopted him, I'm, I'm concerned that sometime as a kitten, someone may have hit him or something. Because if you move too close to him, he always tries to protect his face. He's a very cute kitty, though. Aren't you, buddy? Yeah, look, you're online. Look, there he is. All right. So, as we continue... They're now at this point, she's trying to lead them through dodging as much of the undead as possible. Because as they grow around them, she knows we're going to get overwhelmed eventually and it's going to be too many. And they move through the streets. Suddenly, they get to an intersection on the roads. For the first time, they don't see a bunch of undead around them. There's still some moaning behind them. Now we're following them, but they're a little ways back now. They've outpaced them. Well, the buildings around them still seem to have some fire and such going on. They, they don't hear as much of the clash of battle. You can still hear it in the ambiance of that, if you will. There's battle happening in the city somewhere, and you're going to hear it, but directionally, it's not doesn't sound like it's, it's all around them at this point. And they have a chance to quickly breathe and try to get their bearings. And then the fog rolls in a little thicker for a moment and swirls and then fades back out. And as they're there, they see that when the fog rolls out, all of a sudden, in this intersection, they're just surrounded by zombies. Almost like they just wisped in. They didn't wisp in. They walked in in the fog. But the fog seemed to have been... came in, and as it dissipated, the zombies were there. And they find themselves in this intersection surrounded by just zombies. Now, they're not, like, up close. They're just, you know, it's going to be hard to break through. Each road has got a whole bunch of zombies on it. Of this intersection. But they're not moving in. They're just kind of standing there watching. Artemis and the young guy kind of keeping the kids between them, trying to figure out what's the best, fastest way to get out of here. And she hears the young man moan in like, 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 oh no, or oh God, or something like that, like in a, a disappointed or upset kind of way. And she looks the direction he is, and the undead have parted to allow another undead to walk in. Now, this person is larger than everyone else. A human would appear, although well over six feet. Dressed in very ornate plate mail, head to foot, except for its helmet. And while it's very good quality, it's dirtied up, dented a little bit. And you can see that part of its cheek has been ripped away and it's just kind of hanging there. Right? And looking at it, Mercy sees that the insignia on the armor matches what was on the young man next to her. And she looks at him quizzically, like, who the hell's this? And she said, and he just replies, my Lord Doran. He goes, I, I, yes, I know. I'm telling a story. Shush. 
says, my lord Doran, he goes, I am, he goes, I am his squire. We were separated two days ago. Mercy doesn't have time to ask a lot of questions. She got that much out of him. But this Sir Doran, whoever he is, is walking towards her, a really big dude with a really big two-handed sword. And he looks much more cognitive, if you will. He knows what he's doing. He's walking forward with purpose. Yet you can tell from the wounds and half of his cheek hanging off, the man's dead. There's no life in his eyes. Yet he's looking directly at Mercy and the children and this young guy and starts marching in. None of the other undead are moving. They're just watching. As this big guy comes marching up, drawing his weapon. Well, he had it out. I mean, he's just walking up with his two-handed sword, purely with the intent to kill these people in front of him. Mercy, looking around as quickly as she can, sees a, a, a shop on the corner. And the way that the shop is built, the front door is open. And looking through, she can see that there's an open door in the back of the shop. She can see right through it. And she turns to the guy, to the young kid, and she goes, and she goes, without pointing, she doesn't give up, but she, she just through the shop door and out the back. Take the children and go as fast as you can. I will do my best to hold them off. He looks at the path, sees where she, what she's talking about, and looks at her like, there's no way you're going to survive this. But he looks at the kid, nods, and he hands her back her shield. She's going to take it at first, and he's like, he's like, you're going to need this more than I will. She takes her shield back. As this guy's walking in closer, and Mercy just turns and goes in to fight him. While the young guy and the kids makes a break for this door. Now, as soon as they make a break, the zombies start moving in as well. But, you know, they're zombies. They're slow. The kid goes running through this building, hoping there's no undead in there. And Mercy's hoping he can get right in and right out through the back and keep on going. But she doesn't have time to watch him because this really big guy is marching in. Now, fighting the thing, it is clearly undead. But it's new undead. Which means it's not quite as rigid and locked up in the bones as you see. The fresher the undead, the more movement it has. This is how it works here. It may not work in all the movies and such, but it does move a little bit more fluidly. But its they're not runners. It's none of that stuff. Climbing buildings. It's not doing any of that. Those are special undead. But regular undead don't do that. But this thing clearly knows how to use a sword, but it's... I try to explain this. It's moving with purpose... It's fighting as you would fight, but not with the same skill, strategy, and speed that it would have as it was alive. I'm hoping that makes sense. Like it's swinging the sword in the right movement, trying to stab or swing. It's, you know, it's, it'll even block, you know, although a lot of times when it gets hit by a weapon, especially hit the arm and such, it just shrugs it off because it doesn't feel pain. You break its arm, it doesn't care. But it's moving with purpose, but it's not like looking for weaknesses in, in your armor or trying to faint you out and stuff like that or, or dodge thing and then sneak in. It's not doing any of that. It's clearly moving with the knowledge of how to use a weapon but without the cognitive ability to create strategy or that type of thing. So I'm hoping that makes sense of the level of intelligence of what we're seeing here. More than a regular zombie, not as much as a person. 
during the fight, this is a big sword. Uh, Mercy's shield gets seriously damaged. Which I remember she was not happy about because it was a shield plus one. It was one of the only magical shields they'd ever come across. Which is why Darsh is getting his dragon shields made back in Paxawal. And he wished he could have brought it with him, but it wasn't done yet. Um, but it was one of the only magical shields they ever came across, and it, it just gets obliterated. Um, even though magical things are stronger and more resilient, they still have their own durability. And the shield gets hacked up by this sword. Um, and it injures her. She gets several cuts. And she can hear the undead moving around her, but they seem to be chasing mostly kids or holding a wall so she can't run away. Um, she doesn't really have time to focus on them. She's looking occasionally, which of course gives her a negative. She's making sure they don't just grab her from behind. But she's fighting this thing. And she can't quite get to its head. It's tall, and it's strong enough to defend that, and it is blocking fights from that. So eventually, uh, she decides to go a different route and go after its legs. And she's successful. Uh, eventually, she's able to use her Morningstar to literally smash a leg out. Now, on a living person, it would be in pain. This thing, it's not. But it does fall. And as it falls, it's trying to get back up. Mercy's able to smash an arm, smash the weapon out of its way. And at that point, once it goes down, then she can see out of the peripherals that the zombies are starting to move towards her now. Now that she's got it down, the forces aren't going to let her get away. And she does what she can to basically smash its hands and trying to bash it down in its head as best as it can to make sure this thing doesn't get back up. And then prepares to turn and, you know, take on this walls of zombies coming at her from every direction. And as it, she crunches it under under the, her morning star, she hears it, the bones crunching on this, unfortunately, <laughs> dead lord of the young guy she just helped. She hears a yell. Several. And she turns, and behind the waves of zombies come at her, she sees big minotaurs. With Darsh in the front. And Darsh and a group of five or six minotaurs come rushing up the street, just plowing down the undead in front of her. Darsh has switched from his custom sword that he normally uses to a battle axe. His shield and sword look to have been lost in the battle. Or something. Dropped, whatever. By this point, he's switched to a battle axe, and he's just mowing through undead. Just cleaving them in half and heads, as is the, the other minotaurs with their swords and axes and uh, pole arms that they're carrying. And they are just hewing through the undead. Mercy, there we go, Ray of Hope, starts going in that direction as well. And clearly they're coming for her. They, she, she, they see him and they're yelling at her. And she starts bashing through the undead with renewed hope. And right as the undead are about to start overwhelming her, the Minotaurs manage to smash through, and she's now encircled by very large, hairy, well-armed bodies. Which, you know, who has, who has wanted that to happen? <laughs> this gives her a moment to breathe, although she almost gets squished a couple times. Until she, she motions that she's okay, and they start making their way back out. And the undead don't seem to be following her at this point. I mean, some do. They're zombies. They straggle. But not en masse as they were before. 
Darsh and Mercy manage to, with their group of Minotaurs, make it back to the larger forces, which at this point um, are having to back, you know, retreat slowly, while the undead were taking over the town. They got out at pretty much everybody they could at this point. The town is completely infested, but the undead do not appear to be trying to move past the town. They're kind of just hanging out in the city as it burns, and they just hang out. So the army, if you will, backs out a distance and tries to set up a defensive position, assuming they're going to start marching sometime soon, but not when. So this gives everybody a chance to get back together, and they can kind of talk about what's happened. And Dandy talks about the skeletal horses with the skeleton dude she saw on top. Mercy talks about the young guy and the his lord thing. Um, Darsh says that he came across the young guy and the kids, and that's who told him where Mercy was. And after some searching, they managed to track him down. Uh, the kids are being cared for. He's bleeding quite a bit, but the clerics are actually looking at him at that time and talking to him. They ask, you know, where are you? Where are you from? What's going on? Clearly, you don't look normal around here. Do you know what's going on? Are you part of this undead problem? You know, all the questions you would ask in a situation like this. And he says that he is a squire to, unfortunately, the late Lord Doran, who. He's been under him for, for several years at this point and belongs to a knighthood far, far uh, to the um, west. And that they were traveling, you know, basically out on a mission. Their, their knighthood has a period where every so, like, each person reaches a specific rank. They have to go out and donate several years of their life to helping others. You know, it's not unfounded in, in even some of our knighthood histories. When you reach a certain rank or you reach a certain thing, you must go out and prove yourself, not just to us, but to the people. And so, as his squire, he went with him. There was, a, there was another knight with another squire, um, and they were traveling just through lands, seeing what they could do to help, and so on and so forth, when they were set upon in the night by the undead. Um, they fought as best they could, but uh, the Lord basically... The two knights told the squires to run, you know, because they're not fools. But they and, and the squires, you know, they took off, but they lost each other, and he didn't know what happened to him. And then yesterday afternoon, he stumbled into this town, hadn't eaten in a day or so. People are trying to get out of there, and he's got the undead hot on his trail. And uh, there's that. He was in there. He's, he's trying to help out where he can, trying to get some food and such, and then. The undead come in, and from the beginning he can say that some of the undead coming in were on fire. The people did not set them on fire. Burning undead came walking into the town and just started walking into buildings, smashing through doors and windows, and then everything started going up. And he did what he could, you know, he trying to, at this point, not knowing if he's going to live or die, he's lost, he doesn't know where he is, just try to do what he could under his tutelage, which was to help people as much as he could, because he comes from a good group of knights. and uh, ended up in a building helping defend these kids. Then the building caught on fire, and he was trying to get the kids out of there. The other person that was with him fell, and it was 
he didn't know any of these kids. He's not related to any of these kids. He was just trying to get them out of the town, but he didn't know which direction to go. He's not from here. He knows people were trying to get to the east. That's supposedly where the, the head king lived, but you know, he didn't know how to get there or which direction. And that's when he came across Mercy. And if I didn't mention it, his name is Ulrich. Ulrich von Westen is his name. And he definitely thanks her for her help. And she's like, I thank you for yours. You're doing the right thing. You're helping some kids. Good job. And uh, that's basically the end of that. He tells his story and so on. The other thing that they learn, uh, this was something that Artemis learned during the battle, is that when undead were destroyed, or put down per se, um, she heard this from multiple different people, talking to the warriors and people that were injured and what was going on. Several people noticed that when someone was destroyed or undead was crushed or died, a wisp of light or soul or energy, something bluish in nature, bluish white came out of them and dissipated. Almost like a spirit or a soul. But that each time it came out, because once she became aware of this, she started looking for it. She actually put herself into some precarious situations to learn this, that Mercy would have been none too happy about. But actually getting up closer into combat, each time that the wisp would come out, it would, wouldn't have the shape of a person. It would just be a, a bluish shape. But it would always start to head to the east as it fades and dissipates. Like it's going back the direction the undead were coming from. Is that important? I guess we'll find out eventually. Turn to the right page here. At this point, this force of undead just seems to be hanging out there. It's late into the night now. People are tired. They're healing up as best they can, preparing for another assault from the undead, but the undead don't seem to be coming. They're just kind of meandering throughout the town. Sadly, occasionally you'll hear a scream. Um, but you can see them moving in there, and even though over hours, eventually the sun starts to come up, the fires, some of them are burning down, still some smoke and such, the fog never completely dissipates. Still that greenish fog. The scouts, which have been trying to go around the edge, find the border, are giving much higher numbers of undead, at least based on what counts they could in the fog, than what was expected. There's a lot more undead here than they were planning for. And it would not take very long for the undead to overwhelm even the large force they brought with them, because... Fighting in last night's situation was not optimal, was not something they were super planned for, and there were more casualties than they would have wanted, of course. And you always expect some. There were more than they could have ever wanted. And again, with each one that fell, there are now even the occasional silhouettes of an undead minotaur in the fog, which definitely does not please the surviving minotaurs, because that's just not how things work in minotaur. You just don't let somebody come back as an undead. So the companions are discussing, and they're like, this wall of undead is here. They're going to keep marching. 
just straight combat against them is not going to take them. They've got, they've got numbers at this point. Even if we had ten times what we have, they may eventually overwhelm us. We need a we need a better plan. And upon discussing it, they decide that the source of this is either in the mountains, in that graveyard, or in that keep. These are the three things, either living up in the mountains or one of those two locations. And so they figure that they need to get to the source, because if they can take out whatever's leading it, then the undead aren't quite as organized, they may be easier to take down. Just shambling dead at that point. And so it's discussed with the generals that two groups of people will try to go around or infiltrate through the undead to check out these two places. And our heroes, of course, volunteer to be one of those two groups. Yes, I know, it's exciting. And when given the decision, they decide that they're going to go to the keep. And the other group, which is going to be a bit more cleric-heavy, are going to go to the graveyard. And the reason for that is, is that the graveyard is going to be uh, much more condensed. Like, when I say that, that they're going to have to go through larger groups of undead to get there. Whereas a smaller force, if they were to head south and cut along the lines of the mountains, um, might be able to avoid a large amount of the undead and just kind of sneak past. Um, but the graveyards, you know, like I said, it's kind of all over where the undead is. So it's going to have to be a larger group where our friends, our heroes here, are better at being a small group and sneaking through. Um, so our four heroes agree to go. Um, they've already proven themselves quite a bit with the forces of Thorman, and Paxwell already thinks very highly of them. And, and in this situation, even Thorman's like, hmm, should we? Paxwell, people are like, yeah, you should let them. They have a habit of getting stuff done. They agree to let them go, just themselves. But Tobias is going to go with them. Because Tobias says, hey, if you get in there and this is some kind of necromancer, some kind of wizard, you may need some type of magical help. You know, the major, the more powerful mages have to stay here. They have to defend the army and such. I can be spared. I will come with you. I have a few magical items and artifacts that uh, I brought with me. Got some protection versus undead stuff. Got a couple scrolls, some things that might help out here. Um, that my mistress, Lamia, if you remember, Lamia is the head of the, um, as you could say, neutral wizards in the Mage Tower of Paxable. And I did want to take a moment to mention here that if you'd like to see what Lamia looks like or some of the other characters that I've talked about today, uh, you can go to OnlyDraven.com and on the top of the page will be links for different pages. Excuse me. And one of them will say characters. If you go there, um, I put up pictures, uh, either artist renderings of characters that I, uh, that I see that really represent the characters or actors and actresses that I think are exactly how I modeled this character. Um, so I have one for me. I added several new ones today. So if, you're ever, if I'm ever talking about a character and you're wondering, you know, how does that person look in the story? That's a great resource to go and check those out. And hello, James. I see you there. I apologize. I'm trying to get that out so I can get back and say hello. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the uh, it's a resource if you'd like to see something here. Lamia is there. I have the picture of today I put up. Uh, all three of the head clerics of Paxawal, Lamia, Draven, and 
Tobias. So a picture of Tobias is up there now. I've shown it before, but I didn't have it on the website. So, they gather their gear, they get the stuff that they can, they replace their weapons with what they can get from the military. Darsh did lose his sword, which again, sword plus one. Not happy to lose that sword. His shield was, wasn't magical. He gets that back. But he gets another sword and such. And some of the Minotaurs offer to come with him. Which is kind of surprising. They're like, we will fight with you. Yes, let's go find combat. And Darsh is like, well, I appreciate it, brothers. Where we're going will be more avoiding combat. And I would not want to take you away from the honor that you could receive crushing the undead and avenging our fallen brethren and such. He gave a good speech. And the character did that. It wasn't me. The player who did that did a really good motivating speech. And they're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, we'll stay and kill things. But we like the way you think. And they basically left as quickly as they could. Now, they were going to head south for several hours. Slightly south west. Away from them. Because they want to get out of the sight of the undead and then kind of loop up around. Um, they're not going to go all the way to the south because eventually they'll hit the ocean. Uh, but they want to get down and then try to come up around along the, the mountain's edge. I'm really going to do my best to try to sometime in the next week or so scan and get a couple or you take decent pictures of some of the maps I have of these areas so that way you'll have a better, better understanding of what the layout of the land is. I have maps for all of this stuff. And I have maps at different phases of the story where they have changed. So, um, But most of them are just pencil on paper. They don't show up well if I hold it up on the camera. Um, but I'm going to do my best to get some of the maps up as well um, on the website or nothing else. I'll post some of them in the Discord channel on the Merged Worlds page for anyone who might like to see some of those. Might be a good resource for folks to come in there and see some of those maps. I'll try to get some of those up here in the next couple days as well. They do their best. They did not get much sleep. After they head south for ways and they're away from combat, they take a few hours to rest. Um, they can't all rest, of course. Uh, Artemis needs to rest the most to get her spells back, as does Tobias. They've both used a bunch of spells the night before. Uh, Darsh and Mercy basically half the rest because they need Dandy to rest because she's going to be scouting ahead, making sure they stay away from groups of undead. She has to go ahead of them, lead them around the forces, if you will. So she's going to be scouting. They want her to be fully alert. So Darsh and Mercy split the watches themselves. So they get an okay sleep, but not as much as they would have liked. But they are successful. Um, they managed to get around the southern tip of the um, undead's forces, start making their way to the east towards the mountains. And Dandy does a great job of keeping them out of view of the undead. They give them a great berth. They, they don't try to get within eyesight at all. They don't want to attract anything. So they don't run with torches and such. At one point it rains, I remember. Um, and so they don't start fires or nothing, even when they were sleeping. They didn't want to do anything to draw attention. Uh, they're wearing clothing that would help blend in a little bit and such. They got all their extra stuff in their chest of holding. So anything they don't need in hand that could be clanking or make noises is all in the chest of holding. They only have the weapons and such they have to have on them. They are prepared to fight if they need to, but they are trying to avoid all that. And luckily, since most of the undead just shambles, if they do run into some of the undead, they should be able to just, at a decent, brisk pace, get away from them. But if something is controlling them, then that thing might know they're there. And that's what they're more worried about. 
not really running into a handful of undead that they could crush, but alerting whatever's, you know, controlling or leading them. Now, it takes them a decent amount of time. This is a good travel. This is, this is, would be half day's travel in normal situations on foot. But they're having to go hours out of their way down and loop up around, avoiding quietly, carefully, staying in trees when possible. And then they get to the edge of the mountain. They start, they don't have a lot, a lot of cover there. There's some rocks and boulders and such that have fallen. But overall, there's not a lot of trees and stuff growing at the edge of the mountain range. So they have to be very, even more careful there. Very even more careful. I'm not sure that was very good grammar. I apologize. Eventually, though, Danny returns and says, I can see the keep. And you guys aren't going to like it. Darcy's like, what is it? What did you see? She goes, there's lights in there. Like, there's glowy lights in there. Like, I don't know what's glowing, but it's glowy. And it's like a green glow and a blue glow. There's glows. And they glow in different areas. And they throb and they glow. Like, we get it. It glows. No torches? It doesn't look like torches. It just looks like a glow. They're like, okay, it's a glow. And this leads them to believe, okay, maybe we chose correctly. doesn't mean that there's nothing at the graveyard as well. But something is in there. There wasn't any signs of this in any previous exploration from Thorman. So they believe they've chosen correctly. Tobias, you know, once they are, they don't want to get super close to the thing. Dandy was able to sneak in. She goes, but there's a lot of undead at the base of that mountain, just meandering about, kind of hanging out there. And some of those horse skeletons that I was talking about, with the guys on top of them, there's a couple of them meandering about in there too. And they, there's a lot of them, and they look like they're just hanging out. So we're not going to be able to get to the base, and if we try to climb across, they're going to see it. Now, the mountains are steep and not easy to climb. And Darsh, well, an avid climber, ropes and riggings in boats, not so much in mountains. He's a big guy. He falls, he's going to make a noise, and he's also going to be more noticeable than anyone else. Start looking for other options. Tobias casts a spell um, to try to locate anything magical around them. He's not successful, which is good, because he was afraid there might be something controlling the undead. He's trying to do a detect magic spell. He figured he'd blow one of his instead of Artemis use up one of hers, because she's the healer and she needs more magic for that. And undead. She has the turn undead thing. We want to keep her in tip-top reserves for, for the big stuff. And while trying to find a way up in the mountains. They thought maybe we can climb up in the mountains and come around it. As they're searching, they find half buried with rock a big arch. Not like the arch that was under the Valley of Sacrifice. This is just a stone arch carved into the mountain with two great metal doors on it. All designed with intricate floral patterns and such like that. You know, vines and roses and thorns and such like that. And the rock is, there's rocks in front of it and they're like, okay. Dandy's like, you know that, it kind of looks like the same thing that the keep is made of. Like design-wise, the walls have some of the same etchings that I could see. You know, it's a very nice keep if it would have been kept up, but it's poorly, poorly taken. No janitors. 
There's no janitors in there. It's crumbling, falling apart. Totally needs some hedge trimmings. But yes, there's vines and roses and thorns and stuff. And they said, okay, maybe this is a way in. The place has got a back door. We'll give that a shot. I know it's exciting midnight. Yes. So they, Darsh specifically, moves a large, a large, a large rocks and they manage to break their way in through the door. Now the door was magically sealed and it took uh, one of Tobias's scrolls that were given to him, uh, a scroll of dispel magic, a uh, much stronger spell than uh, he has the ability to do, but Lamia had made it and given it to him specifically, so it came with a much more powerful force. Now, if you play Dungeons & Dragons, you know that somehow that kind of doesn't work that way, but on one thing that I've done customly with the way magic works is that a person knowing how to do it can cast a spell on a scroll or on an item. There's some spells this will work for where the command word anyone could speak to make the effect happen. Now, that being said, they can't control it. Like if I, it's not going to be a scroll of fireball. If it's a scroll of fireball, then the thing's just going to turn into a fireball and whoever's holding it's going to get burnt. It's not something like that. But if I did a scroll of detect magic, then it would do everything around me. I can't detect it in this direction or that direction or on a specific person. It's just going to get everything in that area. But it's going to be at the power level of the person who made that scroll. This one is a dispel magic. So Tobias basically gives everybody all of their stuff, um, all the magic items they're carrying away because he doesn't want to dispel anything magical they're carrying and they all back up and he's basically standing there in just his robes and he's like, I'm going to bust this spell out. And he does it and it is strong enough to break the ward on the, the doorway. And they have to give him all his magic stuff back and everybody comes back in range and they're able to open the door. Darsh takes him a while. takes a lot of strength to force that door open. It's been closed a very long time. So. They enter into this, this thing. And it's musky in there. And it's dusty. There's maybe some cobwebs and such. Dust all over the floor. No footprints. Nothing's walked in here for a very long time. And they start making their way through. Now as a classic Dungeons & Dragons adventure, this was a multi-roomed corridor, and as they're going down, they get to intersections, and there's chambers off of it, and there were several minor incidents. You know, they find a, uh, a room with some type of underground creature that had taken up residence there. They have to fight it. Uh, things of that nature. There was some minor Dungeons & Dragonsing, <laughs> if, if you will. Um... I think this is the first time that I introduced them to something called a piercer. And a piercer, uh, I, I think I mentioned, I can't remember if I've mentioned this before. Basically, it's like a, I always forget if it's a stalagmite or stalactite. I always forget. It's the one on the roof. Dang it. The spikes that come down. And as you walk under it, it just falls. It's very sharp. And it'll stab you. And there's a creature basically inside of it. Uses the rock kind of like a shell, like a, a crab would. And it's very slow. If it doesn't kill you, then it just then it basically claw, crawls over and eats you. Uh, but it's very sharp and very large, and it'll fall on you, and then it will slowly work its way back up and just hang up there. And then they'll hang there for, for years between having to eat. This is the first time they came into a room of those. There was a group of those they had to deal with, and uh, that was it, was it was a nice surprise, because they were all looking for that 
roper looking thing they fought in the other cave with the elasticy whips because I'd made them fight one of those in the, before. Hush, that's enough now. Hush, please. I didn't do that. I brought it down from above this time. Keep them on their toes, my motto. About that time. <laughs> but they went through several rooms chamber, and I've got a map of that chamber here. There were seven different rooms they had to make their way through. And again, it was a little bit of a maze. It wasn't very common, so if they went the wrong direction, they came to a dead end, had to come back. They fought their way through a couple of rooms. Uh, a couple of rooms, I think, had a puzzle in it, because I like to throw a good puzzle in every dungeon. Uh, some of my dungeons are all puzzles. I love those ones. Not so much the characters, but I'm a big fan of those, so I like a good puzzle dungeon. So, after hours of coming through here, and at some point even having to try to barricade themselves up and rest and catch a few hours nap in there as well, they come to another set of doors just like the ones they found out there. These ones are open. And as they're pulling up to the... Um, as they're pulling up, like they're driving in a truck, as they're walking up <laughs> to this doorway, they see that now there is some footprints in the ground. And they don't, they're not steady and looking at them, human-sized footprints. Average size, human dwarf, you know, something like that. Not minotaur size, not big old boots, but regular size. And as they make their way up, they're being more cautious now. And Dandy sneaks up and gets a look. And sure enough, it looks like they're inside the keep. She sees the architecture and the rooms they're in and Again, there's there's the keep the way it's designed. There are rooms that would have been barracks, um, and there are rooms where there would have been even stables. Um, on the front of the keep, down the mountain, used to be a, a almost like a big stone man-made uh, ramp that kind of came down and curved out, and that's how you would get up into it. So it's very very well um, defended because anybody who wanted to get up to this high keep had to come up this curved. I mean, when I say thin, I mean like a big wagon could go up it. I mean, clearly it's not, you're going to fall off the side, but an army can't come running up there. It was very well defended. Um, but that was crushed in, into just dirt over time. It's collapsed and it's just rubble on the bottom now, so that's why nobody could just walk up to the front like normal. I know, it's exciting. And so, they're having to be cautious because Dandy does see some undead wandering around. Now, they appear to be the standard normal undead, just regular zombies or such. Nothing that seems more intelligent, but she's trying to be cautious because there are rooms that she can see. And as she's sneaking up and looking around... Oh, goodness. You okay? Bumble. As they are looking around, she can see that the rooms don't have anything in them. At least the couple rooms she can see. But sometimes an undead will walk in hang out there for a little while, come back out, walk over there. There's no real organization to what it's doing. She goes back and reports to the group what they say. From the layout that she, they can design, they say, okay, well, we're going to have to make our way through here, so do we take out the undead or do we try to avoid them? And there's not many of them. And they think we, they decide they're going to try to get around them without fighting any of them, because again, the fear that destroying one might draw attention to them being there just the sounds of battle itself. So Dandy moving ahead, checking for traps, as a good rogue always does, but doesn't find any. Works her way around and is able to find a path 
and there were a lot of rolls involved to see if they successfully did it. And they managed to pull it off. Dandy charted a course. It was a it was an opportunity where I, I gave what Dandy saw and she had to chart their course. And then I would roll to see whether or not the zombie meandered that direction or not. There was a lot of perchance stuff, and a lot of it was based on her planning. So it was a really good opportunity for, for Dandy to kind of step up and plan something for the group. Because Dandy doesn't get to do that often. A lot of times she's the scout, comes back, and then they decide what's going on. So this is an opportunity for her to kind of step up and, and have that experience, which was, was very fun for the player. But she was successful, and they managed to make through to what they can see are really large doors that are partially open. Um, and this would appear to be the grand chamber of the... Of the because most, most keeps, castles, temples have some type of big room. They just had a big... Uh, back of the other castle, they just had a big meal and party and an assassination attempt in a room just like that. It's usually the place where you have your big ceremonies or your big parties and things. And just from the layout, Dandy, from what she could... Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Sorry about that. A kitty just knocked something over. I apologize. Pay no attention to that. <laughs> knocked over one of my hinds. Hey, buddy. You need to stop being a goober. But as that's... They find their way to the door, Dandy says, there's clearly a glow coming in that door. She can see that. There is That room is well lit. And next to that door, there are stairs that go up on both sides. So, to give the give the concept, imagine if you would like a theater where you could go in and overlook on a balcony. The stairs definitely lead out into that, so either there's some type of balcony or some type of ledge that would go around, but there's a second floor to whatever this big room is in front of them. And their decision is, do we go right in the open door or do we try to sneak upstairs? Dandy decides to go up and look upstairs. Party agrees. When Dandy gets up there, she can see as she gets near the top of the stairs that there are some undead right there at the top of the stairs. She tries to go up the other side the same way. So it's almost like they're guarding. These ones are not meandering around. They're regular undead, but they're just kind of hanging out there. So again, they have to decide, do we try to take out these undead and get a lookout from up top? Or do we just try to go through this open door? There's no sounds coming from the open door. It's dead quiet in there. <laughs> dead quiet. Let's see what I just did there. No sounds at all. They decide to go through the main door. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I hadn't expected that. I kind of thought they'd try to take out the ones up top and get a look, but they decided not to do that. They decided to go through the door. And peeking through the door, they can see that there's some very old, large curtains hanging there. So imagine a room with pedestals, you know, you got your big poles that are holding up the roof, two-story room. There's definitely a balcony above you, and it does go all the way around the room. So people could be sitting up there looking down. Hanging, almost like tapestries from the ceiling, are large curtains around the walls, giving a space behind them, probably about four to five feet between them and the outer wall. This would commonly be used as a way for servants or cooks to get around the room to bring things to people without having to walk in front of everybody if there's a ceremony or something going on. Well, it's not a permanent wall. It could be pulled down if you need to. It's just big curtains. And some of them have rotted. Some of them have clearly just fallen down over the time. But there are several of them that are there. And Danny's like, sweet, I can sneak in behind one of those. 
And she tells them, they're like, okay, be careful. Do you see any dead? Because I don't, can't see much in there. The light is glowing, but unless I get in there and try to shoot around, she can't really see what's in the room because the door cracked. But the second she looks in, if somebody's looking at her, they're going to see her. So that she knows she's got to be quick. And she gets up to the door. She makes her rolls. And she very quietly sneaks in, trying to stay in shadows, which there's a little bit, but not a lot. And make her way behind the curtain. She's about to look into the room and, you know, from behind the curtain, try to sneak a look and see what's in there. When a voice speaks... I knew you'd come eventually. I knew it would just be a matter of time. And I cannot begin to say how happy I am that you're here. Give me a second. I take another drink. It doesn't say that. That's what I said. The jig is up. The rest of the party hears this. Clearly whatever's in there knows they're here. And Dandy's in there by themselves. For fear that the door is going to close, because who knows what's in there, she's stuck in there, they quickly rush in. I mean, at this point, they don't know what they're rushing into, but they don't want Dandy stuck in this room alone. So they quickly rush in. Dandy comes around the curtain as well to meet them, but she's going much slower. If you'll remember, I told you that Kender are immune to fear. You can be afraid for a friend, concerned, if you will, but that feeling of fear, they don't feel. And Dandy doesn't feel fear now either, but not for herself. But Dandy recognizes the voice. And she now has fear of what has happened. Not the fear for her life, again, like something's going to eat me but the fear for how did this happen. She comes around the curtain, joining up with the rest of the companions. Down across this large room, stone and wooden tables and chairs mostly have collapsed at this point. There's a few of them there. Clearly this was a big banquet hall at some point. On the end is a large, would be throne. Probably someone of rank would sit there. And sitting there is a figure. Dressed in armor. Pretty good armor. Good quality armor. Not old, old, old armor. Relatively new. And everybody's a little shocked. Because they see who it is. As you can see, I'm dragging this out. Though he still looks much like the Michael they knew, there are obvious changes. His hair has gone all gray. And a greenish, whitish light and glow comes from his eyes. And a wisp of green smoke comes out of his mouth each time that he speaks. 
Again, it's like a greenish-black-white kind of combo. It's like, it, it spirals, I guess I should say. Imagine if you saw a fog that had the swirls of green, black, and white in it. That's what it is. His eyes, can't even see them. They're just basically glowing at this point with the same kind of stuff slowly seeping out of his, from around his eyes, the same smoke. And it's the Michael that Dandy saved long ago. But the most startling thing that they notice is the oval-shaped gem stuck on his forehead, glowing with the same swirling colors. Not only did they find their old friend Michael, they found the death gem. One of the Vasanya gems that they've been looking for. It is Michael who sits on this throne, and it's Michael who's controlling the forces of undead. But when he looks at them, he's not looking at them, he's looking at one. He's looking at Dandy. And he smiles. Pure, genuine delight. We knew we'd find you eventually. That's what we were promised. That if we became one, we could bring you back. And we could be with you forever. And I've been searching. Slowly, steadily searching. I knew you had to be out there somewhere. We were promised. That if we became one, we could bring you back. And we would be together forever. Michael stands. And you can see he's well-armed, got his sword and such on him. The armor he's wearing, the same type of armor that he wore before, although twisted now, definitely shaped slightly different, but with the same greenish glow coming from his entire body underneath the armor. That's enough. Hush. Hush. Go. And now we have the ability to cure you. We can save you. And make sure that we never lose you again. And our friends. I can save our friends. All of us can be together forever now. We never have to fear losing each other ever again. Or anyone else for that matter. One of the very first important things that they were told by the demigod when he was sent out to find these stones is that they should never ever merge with the stones because if they do the stones can take they have a life of their own they literally take you over and then you're no longer who you are you're just a vessel for the stone but the stone will prey on your wants and desires and your needs and try to give you those things because even though you're still you the stone still is a part of you and it still wants to give you what you want but maybe in a twisted way of providing it. Michael had lost Dandy. Michael was completely in love with Dandy. And all he wanted was to get her back. He couldn't find her. But he found the stone. 
and had promised that he could get her back forever. Michael says this, by the way. This is what he's telling his friends. They're like in horror. And now you too can join us. And we can all be together. Just like our friends. And as he says that, two figures come walking out from behind the curtains behind him. Clearly dead. Injuries and marks on their faces and skin. One in in robes but with long hair. Greenish brown robes that she enjoyed so much when living in nature. And the other one, long black hair, dual wielding swords. The undead forms of willow and shadow come up to stand beside him. See, my love, I was able to save them too. And we've been waiting for you. We knew you had to be out there somewhere. And now we can all be together again. And he just smiles and nods as Shadow draws his weapons and starts to move forward. Willow doing the same. One moment, I need a throat loss. So this was not a good time for them. They're now in a situation where they're having to fight the raised bodies of two of their best friends who up until this point they hoped were alive out there somewhere. If you remember, Zoltan said he couldn't find them. So everyone that he couldn't find, he believed were out there alive somewhere. And they found Zarin. Turned out to be a bit of a prick. And they had to kill him. Who'd also merged with the gem. But he had a much more intelligent... Zarin was very intelligent. And as such, the gem didn't take over him. He was able to come to a happy medium there. Michael, not so much. Not that he was dumb by any means, but he just didn't have the mind Zarin did. And at this point, they have no choice. They have to fight. And they do. Shadow, just as deadly as he was in life. He was a ranger. Not using, doesn't use his bow and arrow at all in this combat, though. He is just dual-wielding his swords, and he's the biggest problem. Um, because at first, it's just him and Willow and several other un- low-level undead that came in. This is one of the first... This was the second time I ever actually used a board with tiles, with figures to mark where everyone is. The first time was the battle up in the Flying Citadel. That was the first time that I'd drawn out the Citadel and had everybody use pewter figures to say who is where and this is how much you could move in your turn and to give layout. This battle was the second time that I did that. and Because uh, it was important. Again, there were busted tables, there were the pillars you could hide behind, the curtains were in certain areas, so there were things in the room that people like Dandy, who's sneaky, or um, Tobias casting a fire on a curtain. I'm, he didn't do that, but I'm naming that as an example. Having that ability to know who's coming from where. Undead are coming from this. Some undead literally just fell off the balcony and then s- slowly stood back up and kept coming. There wasn't a ton of undead, but all the ones that were out there wandering around slowly were coming in in waves. So while Darsh and Mercy, specifically, were trying to fight the um, 
Shadow and Willow, and then soon after that, Michael as well. Artemis and Dandy were doing their best to close the door um, and bar it, because they were trying to keep as many undead out. They knew the undead could probably come from upstairs, and there wasn't much they could do about that, but they were doing their best to close the door. And they couldn't get it closed, so they ended up pushing over wooden chairs and stuff they could to try to block it a little bit. Because Artemis was trying to use her turn undead on their old friends. But it had no effect because Michael's power with the gem was complete. Her power was nothing compared to that of the gem. And it didn't work on Michael because Michael's not dead. Michael's still 100% alive. But merged with the gem. And again, if you'll remember... If you merge the gem to an item, the only way to get it out of the item is to break it. If you merge it to a person, the only way to get out of a person is when they die. So this is a very, very rough spot for them to be in. Because Michael's not dead. He's done some pretty crappy stuff here. They really don't want to kill him. They definitely have to take out Willow and Shadow. They want to give them their rest. But... Michael, they don't know what they're going to do. Because the only way to get that gem out is to kill him. They don't want to do that. Because he's still Michael. Danny still loves him. Totally loves Danny. And in this fight, every chance he gets, he goes after Danny. His, his number one goal is, hey, I get to kill you and bring you back, and then we get to live forever. I never have to go through losing you again. That gem has completely corrupted every desire and wish that he has through his grief. And completely taken over him at this point. And so they start fighting. And some of the smaller zombies that are coming through, Artemis is able to turn them. Dandy can take some of them out. They're pretty easy. Um, Shadow and Willow have got a lot more focus. Those are his friends. He's got a lot more invested in them. A lot more power has been put into them. And Willow actually isn't that big of a threat. I mean, she was a druid, but she's got no magic left. She doesn't have the mind left for that. So she can't cast any spells. Um, she really just has her staff. And so she was not a big issue. But where she was not that much of a challenge... I mean, you could hit her and such, and she didn't care. She'd still come at you. Um, Shadow more than made up for that. Shadow was, next to Darsh, probably the most damaging character in that party when it came to just pure damage mitigation. Uh, so that was a rough spot. So Darsh... at and, and Mercy took basically took on Willow, and Darsh took on Shadow. Mercy was able to eventually put Willow down relatively easy, but by that point, Michael had come into the fight. And now Mercy and Dandy are fighting Michael, while Artemis is trying to cast what spells she can, as well as Tobias. Now, Tobias has never met Michael. He doesn't know what's going on, he just knows that thing is, in, is a problem, and so he's just straight out trying to kill it. Tobias is not that high of a level mage yet. And he doesn't have any scrolls that do damage. His, they won't work like that. But he's got his magic missiles. And he can't throw a fireball out because he'll catch everybody else on fire. But he is using what spells he has just straight up against Michael. And it's hard for them to say, oh, don't hit him that much. We don't want to kill him. We don't have time to tell the story. Battle ensues. Now they do have a couple weapons, right? They have a weapon and such. Um, with uh, Artemis has her staff. Now her staff, they learn very quickly, works really well against the undead. 
when she hits an undead, as long as she can do a certain amount of damage, and that's how I made the staff work. If she rolled a certain amount of damage, doesn't matter where she hit him, whether it's the head, an arm, a foot, if she does a certain amount of damage points, then the magic of the staff basically negates the undeadness of that, and it, it falters, and it can't be raised again. The life gem versus the death gem. Now, had she had the life gem merged into her, she'd probably be able to just, as well as he, he has, and they could probably fight that way, but she, it's merged into her staff, and she's not going to do any of that. She has the life gem, he's got the death gem. And hopefully everybody realized if there was a life gem, eventually we'd see a death gem. I'm hoping this wasn't a complete surprise. Maybe the Michael part, <laughs> but hopefully the death gem causing all these problems, some of you may have picked up on that. But this battle goes on. Now, Shadow does some pretty good damage to Darshan Mercy. They take several hits. And while they're at one point they manage to damage his arm well enough that now he's wielding one weapon, he's still fast. Unlike any of the other undead they fought, he moves almost just like Shadow moved. Doesn't have quite the strategy again, because his mind is not all there, but he does have the memories of how to move. And so he's not thinking out plots, and you can hit him and he doesn't care, but he still has the ability to deal the damage and fight like, like he could. So you hit him, he doesn't feel that, but he does still know how to hit you back. So he is doing some of that. And Michael was a pretty talented fighter himself already, if you'll remember. Um, and the Death Gem does, like any of the gems, does boost some of your own skills. Even regardless of what gem you merge with, if you're merged with the gem, some of your natural abilities are going to be enhanced just by the magic of the gem. You, you take the Healing Stone and put it in your be a little bit, like, it's just how that works. So the battle continues. Dandy heartbroken about this. Because it, she, I mean, she just realized at some point, I'm probably going to have to kill him. I still love him, but I'm probably going to have to kill him. And that makes it really hard. So she, a lot of times, is focusing on everybody but Michael because she doesn't want to put herself into that situation. She kind of naively wants someone else to have to make that decision for her. Mercy and Darsh are happy to make that decision. I mean, not happy. Let me take that back. They're more than able to make that decision. They don't want to hurt him either. They only knew him for a short time. Uh, one of them more than the other. But they also know how many other lives. You know, they're they're more big picture. But Michael scores a very big hit on Mercy, and Mercy goes down. Cuts her quite a bit to the point that she goes down, and she's unconscious from the hit. A big enough hit that did that. So now it's just Darsh and Dandy against Shadow and Michael. And I'll be honest, Darsh, while really good, probably equal with Shadow, Dandy, not so much with Michael. Probably could if it wasn't a situation where she really doesn't want to hurt him. Like, she's trying to beat him without really trying to hurt him. She's got that handicap. Artemis and Tobias are in a pickle. Tobias is running out of spells. He's at the point where he's going to have to either melee or whatever. But whatever few zombies still trickle in, he's doing a lot of dealing with that, and Artemis is trying to help. But Artemis is in a spot. She sees Mercy laying on the ground. Dandy and Shadow... and, and uh, Sorry, da Dandy, Darsh fighting Shadow and Mercy. And then... Michael successfully gets a big cut on Dandy. 
cutting her on the side. And as she goes back, he steps in and tries to stab, like right through her heart. She manages, she's very dexterous. She managed to throw herself backwards, but now she's scrambling, trying to get up as he's just marching forward. And he, Artemis can see bleeding. She wants to heal, but they're being outmatched. And she can hear the shuffling of more undead back through that little barricade they made and know it's only a matter of time before they come in. She's being overwhelmed. And they're losing. This is one of the first battles in a while since they fought the Undead Minotaur. Undead Minotaur. Hopefully you're seeing where I'm putting this. The Undead Minotaur. The first time they fought him where they're really just losing a fight. They're usually pretty talented. They may lose a little bit for a few rounds, but they're just being outmatched here. And it's only time before they lose. Artemis is searching through her spells. She's praying to her god to give her guidance. You know, please give me the power to defeat this. I am a god of healing and life. That is a god, that is, uh, at this point, a minion of death. It's what we're here to do. Please give me what I need to defeat it. And that's when Artemis hears a voice in her head that says, your god can't help you right now, but I can. Only Artemis can hear Draven's voice. Puts her hand on her chest and she feels the gem. You know, underneath the robe there, that's right. He goes, I knew you'd need me eventually. And luckily, I'm here. You and your friends are losing and you're all going to die. And when you die, he's going to raise you and you're going to be undead creatures for eternity and you're going to help march across this land as a sea of death overtakes the living. That is the future before you now. But I can show you how to beat him. I can help you beat him and I can show you a way to do it and save his life. But if I do this, if I help you, if I help you survive this, I help you defeat him, and I help you save his life, there will come a day when I will need your help. And regardless of what is going on in the world, what is happening with you and your friends and your God, you will drop everything to come help me. This is the offer that I'm making you. And this is your choice. You must remember, whatever you choose, it was always your choice. Artemis caught between a rock and a hard place. Genuinely feels, I don't know what could be worth if I'm if I'm dead and I'm undead and I'm killing innocent people, which is the worst thing she could feasibly think of being undead. Being healing, life, death, that's the worst thing she could think of. Anything has to be better than that option. And so she whispers, I accept. There's a sound almost instantly upon her completing I accept in her ears like a thousand mirrors and windows shattering 
the sound of glass exploding. Nothing explodes. It's purely in her ears. She hears this. She feels a warmth on her chest. And he can, now his voice is stronger in her head. He says, In your hand you hold a weapon charged with the staff of life. With the gem of life, I'm sorry. And in your pocket you hold another gem. Now if you remember, they've got several gems at this point. We have the water gem, we have the fire gem, and then the gem that they got from the dragon area up in there was the was the wind gem, if I'm correct. But in her hand, and in her pocket, in her satchel, she's the one that's currently carrying them. They don't have them in the chest of holding, because they did not, in case that ever got lost or something happened and blow it up. She carries most of the gems. She's made sure of that. Doesn't know why, but she does. They trust her, of course. She stays out of combat. Less likely she'll lose them. He says, you're going to have to merge yourself with the gem. Now, she speaks aloud, even though he's speaking in her mind. And all this stuff's going on. Tobias casting spells. People are fighting. Danny's trying to stay alive. This conversation goes by very, very quickly. And we're still rolling combat while this is happening. Still things going on. Mercy finally wakes up a little bit, but she's pretty hurt. She manages to jump in and help defend Dandy. So now the two of them against Michael, but neither one of them are at tip-top shape. And Michael really hasn't taken much damage at this point. Uh, Darsh has really put a relatively good beating on Shadow. Had Shadow been alive, he'd probably be down by this point, but he's not. So Shadow just keeps coming. And Darsh has taken a few hits, pretty good hits himself. Draven says, I am with you right now. And your soul cannot be corrupted by the gem. Even without me, you have the strength to control the gem. But with me here, I can help you focus the gem. And when you're done, I can help you remove the gem. She, she, she says aloud, how do you know so much about these? How do you know this will work? And he said, someone very powerful told me this would happen and told me everything that I would need to know. They did not know whether or not you'd accept. But they told me what I would need to do if you did. I trust this person implicitly. And because I need you alive, and you know that, I need you to trust me that I'm not going to let you get killed. I need you to choose to help me so I can't let you get controlled. It only benefits me to make sure this is successful. Weighing the pros and cons, she's like, okay, how do I do it? He goes, just press it against your flesh and you'll know. And she does. She takes, reaches out and the gem that she pulls out is the fire gem. It's the one that she grabs. You can't tell the difference when you're touching them. I guess maybe warmth or whatever, but that's the first one she grabs and she has it. And not knowing what to do with it, she just presses it on the back of her hand. And as soon as she does, she feels that the gem, literally like the impulse to just accept it. 
And her first instinct is not to do that. But then she calms down and she she just lets it go. And she feels it in her. It, it's For everyone else, it would look like it just kind of sinks into her skin a little bit. But to her, when she's looking at it, she feels it literally going in and completely going in, just filling her. She feels the magic spreading through her, and it feels like heat. She feels like she's on fire. Not in a painful way, but she can feel the heat and the flames like she's standing in the middle of a bonfire, but not burning. And she just charges in. <laughs> we all know Artemis is not the combat type, but in this situation, she is. And she goes in, and goes immediately after Shadow. Darsh is surprised. She goes flying by him, and he tries to grab her. He didn't know she was coming. She shoots by, and as she gets to him, and he's swinging his sword at her, she just reaches out with her hand hard against his chest, and as, she, as he does, he just bursts into flame and goes flying backwards. Hits the curtain behind, that he was behind originally, behind him, and it starts to burn. It falls down on him, and it becomes a flaming fire of curtain. It's actually pretty cool to have that happen. But he's just rolling around inside this flaming ball of curtain. And everybody, even Michael stops for a moment. And he, and he looks at her, and he just gets this really angry, pissed-off look on his face. Because that gem in him knows what she's done. And now he turns focus. Because now there's someone who could potentially stop him from getting everything he's wanted. Getting that little girl with him forever. And his friends. Perk. But her specifically. Everything he was promised is in front of him. And now this blue-robed elf could take it all away. And so they start to fight. Now... He comes in with his sword, of course, and she has her staff, and when she hits his staff, hits the sword, the, the, the sword itself sparks, like, like with, not like, a, like electric sparks, but like fire sparks, flames. Because again, he's a force of death, and her staff has the magic on it of the gem of life. And that literally is any magical essence coming out of him into that sword that's one gem versus two. And his sword literally goes flying out of his hand and it just crackles in pieces and falls on the ground. It shatters like glass. But he's not deterred. Because he's still got way, way amount of magical power and strength inside of him from the death gem. And he rushes forward and grabs her by the throat. Now, at this point, everybody else, that moment of shock, because this all happens in a quick round, and I want to tell you that when I was having this conversation with the character that runs Artemis, the other person who runs Dandy and um, Mercy did not know this conversation was going on. This was a conversation that we had in a separate room and through the passing of notes. She person who runs Artemis does run Darsh, so she had to run Darsh 
like Darsh didn't know this, but both of the girls that play these were phenomenal at separating their characters and running one character as if it didn't know what the other character did. Probably better than anybody I've ever played with. And there's been a lot of good players over the years, but they were phenomenal at being able to separate two characters at once. That's why we just kept doing it and I didn't break them down to just one. But everyone reacts over their shock. It was like basically one round where I'm like, what the hell's going on? And then they all rush in to try to help because now he's got his hands around Artemis. Now, Artemis isn't that tall, but Michael's short. If you'll remember, he wasn't much taller. He's, he's short for a little dude when they first found him. And he's got his hands around her neck. And she, holding her staff, puts... Oh, uh, I got a comment here. Neon says, really enjoy having to play with other player knowledge. Because when anybody in my group sees me lying, they immediately know something bad is happening. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I, there's a lot of times that I will have a scroll or a letter written that I'll give them between the, before the battle starts, before the story even starts. And I'll say, just hang on to this. And they're like, okay. And we'll be halfway through the night. And I'm like, okay, open that up. And it'll be specifically pertaining to the situation they're in, but the situation they're in only exists because of actions they took. And it's like, how did you know this was going to happen? And it, it, you can't do that unless you know your players and how they're going to react in a lot of situations. I do my very best not to railroad people, um, but it's also very easy to write a story to someone's strengths and weaknesses, if you will. Um, so it's, it's, when you know someone well enough, you're like, I know what they do in this situation. I'll write it so that this would be the repercussion. While always being prepared that out of the blue, they may choose something different. Like not tell anyone that they met Draven. That threw me. I had to change that a whole thing up a little bit. But for the better. For the better. He's got his hands around her throat and he's trying to squeeze the life out of her. She puts her staff against his chest and her hand on his head. Because he's shorter than her. I can't touch the gem. But the way she's doing it, her hand with the gem on it is sitting on top of his head. And in her mind, she's hearing Draven. And he's coaching her. And for all intents and purposes, they had, between Michael and Artemis, they had multiple rounds of combat inside their minds. So everyone else had one round to react to what was going on, but they had five rounds in their mind to do different things, to try different things, to try to defeat each other in different ways. Through conjuring, because they're on like a second, there's the physical battlefield, but there's a mental battlefield where the gems are fighting based on their wills. Um, and there were rolls, I think there was paper, rock, scissors at one point. There were several things we did to determine what went, and Artemis had to do a certain thing a certain amount of times, and it was a mechanic a roll, paper, rock, had to do a certain thing a certain amount of times before he did it to win. So there was always the opportunity that she was going to lose. I, and that's important to me. If there's no real threat that you're going to lose or that someone you care about is going to get lost in any form of story or game, if you know you're always going to live, you are not going to act the same way. You also can't get in invested. If you know that a character is going to come back from the dead over and over and over again, then someone dying isn't impressive anymore. So sometimes somebody has to die and stay dead. And that opportunity should always exist in almost any, any situation in, in, in Dungeons & Dragons. That doesn't mean 
the odds can't be stocked in, stacked in the character's order or in your favor. Sometimes it's the other direction. But there's always got to be that opportunity. And in this situation, Artemis was successful. And through this whole thing, as she's doing this strength of wills, the gems, both of them, the ones that's merged on her and the merged on him, basically come off. They're literally just like explode off of them kind of thing. And both Michael and Artemis go flying back. And Darsh and Mercy and Dandy and Tobias are all literally trying to pry their hands off of each other. And they can't. They don't even have the strength to pull little Artemis's hands off his head or Michael's hands. Darsh can't pull those fingers, the, the force of strength of the two wheels fighting at that time. And they're, they have no idea. I mean, Darsh is like, I could pick up both of these guys with one hand and I can't make either of them move right now. There might as well be a, a stone statue of obsidian using Minecraft that I can't, can't crack. But while that's going on, finally the gems explode in like, you know, this fire and smoke and all of the illusional magic stuff, the colors, because each gem kind of has their thing. The death gem has that green, white, black swirl thing. So there's the thing of that. The flame shoots off of her gem. The health gem, healing gem, also com- or no, did not come off her staff. Let me go back there. It did not come off the staff. Um, but her having two gems is what gave her the better odds to win. Um, life versus death, and then basically trying to burn away the undeath that's inside. And they go flying backwards. And that means everybody else goes flying backwards when this happens. Because they're all trying to pull them apart and yank hands off. And, and they, Artemis looks like she's about to suffocate because he is squeezing her neck. And his eyes are starting to bulge because it looks like she's pressing down on his head. It's just, you know, that's still happening. But for them, in like slow-mo, in their mind, all this other stuff's happening. So they all go flying backwards from the explosion. And the whole room goes dark. Because it's nighttime. And all the glow, the, the greenish glow that was lighting up the castle, everything fades. And it just becomes darkness. Now, everybody here has some form of improvision, or Mercy's got her magical crown on, uh, or tiara thing that lets her see at night. Except Tobias, who doesn't know what the hell just happened. He quickly casts a light spell. The room lights up a little bit. And everyone rushes over, armed, because they don't know what's going to happen next. And both Artemis and Michael are... When I say explosion, they didn't go flying back real far. They almost just fell backwards, but everybody else went flying. They're laying on the ground, their feet just a couple of feet apart. And Michael looks like his old self. And Artemis looks the same as well. Her gem's gone, but in her hair, there's one streak that's just gone pure white. Um, if we were to give an example, if you saw one of the first, uh, the original X-Men movies, when Rogue gets her white streak. It's very much like that. I was really cool when Rogue got that too. So I'm like, man, I wish I'd have made Artemis look like that because the same thing had happened to her before the movie came out. I was like, that's awesome. But yeah, she gets that one streak of white just off of her temples. Not in the middle, it's off to the side. Uh, and her long hair goes white and it's, it's white from this point on. When she finally does awaken, she doesn't sense Draven anymore. And her friends are like, what the hell happened? And she still decides not to tell them about Draven. Still decides to keep it a secret. She just plays it off as, I did the only thing I could think of. I merged with the gem. And luckily, giant finger quotations for those of you listening on the audio podcast, 
Luckily, the gems came off. I had no idea they would. She has to lie to them. And this is, other than keeping Draven a secret, this is the first time that Artemis has openly lied to them. And Mercy and Darsh take them back. But Dandy's like, okay. Dandy's like, I don't know what just happened. And I don't know why she's lying. Because Dandy knows how to lie. And Dandy can sense a lie very easily. But she trusts Artemis and figures there's probably a good reason and she'll probably tell us later. I just don't know why she lied. But I'm happy she didn't kill him. Because at that point, Michael wakes up too. And just begins screaming. Over and over again. Screaming. When they try to touch him, he just crawls backwards, shoving them away, and his hands on his head, then they're on his eyes, and he's just screaming until his voice goes out. It goes on for minutes. And they're like, you know, what do we do? And Artemis walks up to him and gets down and puts her hand on him again, and he goes to move, but then like her hand glows with the spells of healing and stuff, and she he starts to calm a bit. He's still screaming. It's getting quieter and quieter until finally he calms down. Tobias, at this point, gets filled in by Darsh. Darsh takes him aside and says, okay, listen, let me tell you who this is and why this is happening. He doesn't, he knows a little bit about the gems. I mean, obviously he was, he's traveled with them enough and they know, he knows a bit about it, but he doesn't know the whole story of everything. You know, they haven't told everything about Zoltan, but Darsh fills him in on the key points that he needs to know. Michael, Dandy were a thing, they were part of it, so on and so forth. Once Michael calms down and they're able to talk to him, they learn through what little he can speak, because he's very raspy, from all the screaming, and occasionally he has to stop and his eyes just focus, and he gets this horrid look on his face, like he's just seeing the most horrifying thing in the world. And they learn that when the Citadel fell, he survived. And he crawled out. Took him a while to dig his way out, and by this point, a lot of things had fled. You know, the battle had ended, people had moved off, it took him, he, he was deep under there, and it took him a while to dig himself out, probably days. And as he was almost out, his hand touched something that literally might have been like someone shoved a knife of ice right through his hand. We're cold back, because he's in the darkness, but it glowed. And at that point, he sensed, not as much a voice, but... Uh, an idea. You've lost the one you love. She's lost in here. She could be dead. What if you could bring her back? What if you could save her and your friends? Because by this point, he had found the body of Willow. And in grief, because he assumed they were, everyone had died at this point, the gem merged with him, promising that together they could find her and bring her back. And once they did merge, he could, found Shadow, was able to raise her, as well as many of the different bodies and such that were on the battlefield. By this point, most people of the battle had mostly cleared out. Even the humanoids had left. And he'd raised what dead bodies were around him. He was still new to the gem. He didn't have quite the strength. He wasn't fully merged with it yet. But he was able to raise Shadow and Willow, but he couldn't find Dandy. 
And the gem let him know that she wasn't there. She was out there somewhere. And he's like, well, I have to find her. And he realized that each body that he raised, he could see through their eyes. He could hear what they heard. And he had to find Dandy. So the more people he raised, the more likely he was to find her. And that became the driving force. And he wandered, and he took them with him. He wandered through until he ended up in the mountains, and this, the gem led him to this place. And he sat there, and he sent out his armies to find Dandy, claiming victims along the way, each one being a new set of eyes and a new set of ears to hopefully find Dandy. And then he was elated to see her in the battle. She was there. She did, was alive. And he knew that at that point, he could stop and wait. Because it would only be a matter of time before they came to him. That's why the undead stopped in the village. He didn't have to move forward anymore. Now he could just wait, because she would definitely come to him, because it was promised that he would get her back, and they'd be able to live together forever. <clears throat> While this story is being told, Darsh and Tobias, they go out and look outside. They look at the battlements. They look down at the ground. And even as the sun's coming up at this point, they can just see the bodies littered on the ground. All the dead have dropped. Every one of the undead that he had controlled is now just a body on the ground. So they can take comfort in knowing that at least no more lives will be taken. They spend a day there, basically, recouping. They're all pretty injured. Artemis heals up what she can. Luckily, that life stick staff of hers helps out a lot. And they use what magic they can to heal up. And through most of it, Michael stays away. Sometimes he'll let Dandy get a little close, but he sometimes they hear him talking to himself. And when it comes time to go... Because they're like, hey, we have to go back and tell them it's over. At this point, by the way, they've claimed the gems again. And they now have the death gem in their possession. And that one they lock up nice and tight down in the chest of holding. And at that point they decide, because the temptation might be too strong from the others, that all the gems, except for the one that's obviously on Artemis' staff, need to stay inside the chest of holding from this point. Because they're just too dangerous and they may be tempted to merge with them again. Because they are under the assumption that maybe one of the gems tried to take over Artemis, but luckily she was strong enough to fight it. Because again, they don't know anything about Draven. During that same day period while they're there, Artemis makes a very startling discovery. Well, you find some water or something and she's washing off. She realizes the necklace is gone. Chain and all. She thought maybe it broke and fell down into her robes. And when she pulls her robes to look, there is a the equivalent of a tattoo of a blood drop. Just a little bit off-center on her chest. Where the necklace had rested. And it's permanent red blood drop tattoo. As they prepare to leave the next day, they're in a quandary. 
what do we do with Michael? I mean, technically, he's responsible for a lot of people being dead. At the same time, it wasn't really him. I mean, he was, his body was literally being controlled. Because at one point, you know, Michael could say, you know, he even states that at one point, I didn't want to do this anymore. But I didn't have a choice anymore. At times that I, I, while I was inside the eyes of zombies and watching people do stuff, there were times like I was, I felt that way even in my own body. I was seeing myself move like I was looking through someone else's eyes. And things were being done that even I didn't know I was doing. Not that he's saying it's not his fault, but he's just describing what the sensation was like. To be fully merged with the gym. And so they have to decide, do we take him back? What do we do? Do we just show up with him and make a lie like we found the source and we destroyed it? Tobias, while not super happy about the situation, says that he will go with whatever they say. He trusts them... And if they want to turn this guy in, cool. If not, whatever. And Dandy said, I, I don't want to turn him in. I don't want to lose him again. I feel like it's partially my fault because he, he, he wanted me so bad that all this happened. And she feels like she, she's kind of blamed for it. Which he immediately steps in and goes, it was purely me. Not your fault. And it doesn't completely take away the guilt from Dandy. And again, Kenners don't commonly feel guilty. They're like, no, we will tell them that we found some type of magical item that was causing this and that we destroyed it. And that by doing so, we have rid the land of this. The only people we will tell the truth to will be the head clerics back in Paxable and Lamia. Because if we tell her we destroyed a magical artifact and she's the master of magic and there's no way she's going to buy that without wanting a lot more details. We're going to have to tell those people the truth. Plus, we kind of feel like we owe it to them as much as they've been helping us. So, um, yeah, so that's where we're at there. So, we're like, okay, that's what we'll tell him, and we'll say that we, Michael's someone we picked up on the way, he was helping out, and Michael steps in and says, that won't be happening. He goes, I can't come with you. And then he's like, what do you mean you can't come with us? He goes, I can't come with you. You have to understand that all of that was me. Danny's like, no, it wasn't you. The gem took you over. It was controlling you. And even if it was you deep down, you know, wanting it, he's like, no, you don't understand. All of it was me. Every hand that took someone's life, every blade that stabbed in, every flesh that was eaten, that was me. I was in there. I was watching it. I felt my hands do it. I saw through those eyes. I was inside every one of those corpses. And every life that was taken, I felt that happen. Because it was me making it happen. All these lives, and every one of them, I remember. I can't be around you. I can't be around anyone. I look at you and all I see is guilt. I look at our friends and all I can think of what I tried to do. Everyone that I see that is alive only reminds me of the death that I've brought. I can't be around you right now. I'm going to have to leave. Dandy's very upset about it. There's some conversation, of course. But 
Dandy understands, and he promises that she'll see him again. That if he can find a way to atone for what he's done, and he can cleanse himself of the horrible acts that he's done in his desires over the past year or more at this point, almost two, that he will find her. But he promises that he will find her at least, he will see, she will see him again in the future. She's very upset about it. The character, the, the actor, or the young lady who's playing the character was crying a little bit then. But uh, Michael then leaves and he decides to go north. Away from Thorman, away from Paxwall, he just needs to go. In the one direction they really haven't gone. Because north of where they are is way different from north of Paxwell. Again, that's way over there. So he's just going to go north. And he doesn't know where he's going to go or what he's going to do. He takes only the, he only let, he takes a little bit of supplies. Very little. They want him to take food and water. And he's like, no, I'll just take what I've got. And he doesn't take any weapons. And he just leaves. And the companions have no choice at that point but to leave as well. And they have to, they manage to, using ropes and such, climb down. Much easier to climb down than it is to climb up. Using ropes, they're able to lower themselves down from the keep, make their way down the mountain. And then start heading back to Thorman, walking through the fields of bodies. And it takes them quite some time. But eventually they catch up to the rest of the living, the army that's still in almost the same position it was at before. It's moved forward now, because all the undead fell. They moved forward to see what was going on. The townsmen of Pine Ridge is no longer in flame. They're able to put that out, but they're still in defensive, because they don't know these bodies are going to pop back up again. And when the companions are able to say, no, we found the source, this magical artifact, they had their story straight, and we destroyed it, and there'll be no more undead. Completely obliterated, exploded into dust. There's not even pieces left. So, the army is going to still stay there and watch and try to help put things back together. There's a lot of dead to be dealt with. There's going to be a lot of smelly and carrion. And they could attack a lot of monsters that they don't want in this area. So they have a very, very humongous amount of work ahead of them to clean up all of this. But... The companions, as well as the clerics, most of the clerics and the mages and the minotaurs, head back towards Thorman at this point because they've done what they're supposed to do. Paxiwal, many of the soldiers and such are going to stay and help Thorman with this endeavor. Um, but anybody of rank and that doesn't need to be there, they send back to the city at this point because there's still going to be a lot of refugees. They're going to have to resettle and figure that out. And our companions head back to Thorman, and that is where we will call it today because next week we will start. We'll, we'll finish, I'm sorry, not next, two weeks from today, we will start over when they return to Thorman, uh, what happens there, and the next segment in their search for the rest of these gems. Uh, and then now dealing with an incredible sense of loss, because they know that Michael, what he's been through, and he's out there, Shadow and Willow are dead for sure now. So they know now what's happened to all their companions. Shadow and Willow are dead. Zarin's dead, but that was kind of their fault. Fig is chilling out up there in New Gullyville. These four, of course, are here. Uh, they know Fire Moon's alive. They haven't spoken with anybody in Fire Moon's kingdom, but they know he made it. 
but now they at least know where everyone is. Uh, but they feel like they lost three friends today. Michael as well, because as much as he said he'll be back one day, who knows? Not even Draven, maybe. <laughs> Me, Draven, not the character Draven. And Artemis has made a bargain that will undoubtedly come back to her in the future. So, that is where we're going to call it for today. We've been running about two and a half hours today, but I definitely wanted to get the Michael part of the story out. This was uh, one of my favorite segments that we actually played. Uh, hopefully, it came across even an inkling of how well it came across when we actually played it, because it was very emotional for them, and they really got into the story and had a big... One of the, one of the first times we had a big emotional effect on the characters, uh, or on the players, more than the characters. So hopefully that translated well somewhat to the story, and I'm hoping you guys enjoyed what we've heard today. Um, next Merge Worlds, episode 17, will be two weeks from today. Uh, today being Sunday the... What is today? June the 21st. Um, I will have this up on Spotify and on iTunes within the next 24 hours, probably sometime tomorrow. Uh, so again, if you'd like to rehear this and you don't really want to watch the video, definitely recommend checking me out on iTunes and Spotify. Just do a search for Merged Worlds, M-E-R-G-E-D-W-O-R-L-D-S. All one word. Um, if you enjoy the Merged World stories, it would help me out a lot if you wouldn't mind going and following um, or subscribing on iTunes or Spotify, whichever one it is. Uh, the more people that follow these type of things, um, the more their algorithms will advertise it to other people. So the more people I can get to do that, the more people will uh, get a chance to see Merged Worlds. Uh, so, but thank you all for joining me very much. Um, again, I'd like to say, if you haven't joined the Discord yet, please be sure to do that. Go to OnlyDraven.com. There's a button at the top of the page, near the top of the page, that'll let you right into the Discord. We talk about Merged Worlds. We talk about Minecraft, video games, Dungeons and Dragons in general. I'd love to talk with you guys. If you got questions about the story or about the characters? You want me to clarify something? I can go into more detail on some things that happened. Uh, if you're a D&D player, you'd like to know some more of the mechanics about how some of the magic item works, the spell works, or how I do combat, things like that. Please feel free to hit me up on the Discord and ask questions like that. As long as it doesn't give away anything of the story, I'm happy to go into as much detail as I can. I have stats for a lot of the magic items and artifacts that I've created. If it's something you might like to even run into your own campaign or use a version of it, I don't mind that in the least. Um, as well, uh, if you would mind hitting the website, I'm trying to be much, much more active on Twitter, really trying to grow Twitter. So if you have a Twitter account, I would love it if you would go to at OnlyDraven on Twitter, give it a follow. If you see any of these things, you like the story and you want to share it, reposting and liking and things like that really helps people see the channel and, and gets the story out there to more people. Uh, it's definitely Spotify already in just the week has had more people than have watched it on iTunes in the last two months. So um, Spotify is a great spot to get it in there. And I see that Neon said he's going to be hitting Spotify pretty hard this week, and I appreciate that. So feel free to listen, and uh, if you have any questions, hit me up on that. But if you could hit me at Twitter as well or follow me on Spotify or uh, iTunes, uh, definitely I'd like to get the story out there to more people. On the website, we also have Merge World merchandise. I'm wearing that here. It's the Merge World icon. We'll have some more Merge World stuff in the future. Um, but we have a bunch of cool stuff on the Only Draven gaming store that's also on OnlyDraven.com. Uh, we also have the Pride merch that's out this month. Uh, so we've got some stuff celebrating Pride Month. Uh, what else? Uh, thank you again, everyone, for coming and watching and listening. If you enjoyed the stream today, click like. I appreciate that as well, um, as well as subscribing to the channel. Welcome again, our new member, Turtle Master Three Twenty Six. 
Really appreciate you joining up and being part of the membership. If you're interested in having an Only Draven Gaming membership and being one of Draven's Dragons, just go to Only Draven Gaming on YouTube. You'll see a join button. If you click on that, you'll see all the different perks and bonuses that come with the membership. There are a lot, and I'm always looking to add more. Um, so thank you very much. A special thank again to my members for helping me keep the lights on and all this running. And an extra special thank you to my moderators for helping me keep everything going correctly. So I'm going to call that a day. Thank you all again so much for listening. I look forward to sharing this again with you in two more weeks. Uh, we'll be on tomorrow night for some Minecraft streams, so hopefully we'll see some of you then. You all have yourselves a great night, and we will see you soon.